click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. You know, getting into adulthood, there were many things as an adult that I was always putting off. And looking back, I got very lucky because there are some things that I put off that I shouldn't have. For example, creating life insurance, right? If something were to happen, I don't want the burden of a debt or a house or anything to fall on my partner or or my kids even. So, you know, on that note, it's a relief to know that life insurance, especially term coverage, exists, right? And it's surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones that you love? If you're asking yourself this question, you wanna make it easy for yourself to get it set up, check out Ladder. You know, they make it impressively fast and easy to get covered. Just in a few minutes with a phone or a laptop apply, they have smart algorithms at work so that you can find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees, and since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross that off your list just like I recently did. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly improved. Go to ladderlife.com slash SPI. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI. Once more, ladderlife.com slash SPI. Hey, y'all, welcome to episode 500 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. I'm your guest host today, Shane Sams. Now, I know what you're probably wondering. This is episode 500 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Where in the world is Pat Flynn and why? who is this guy that is talking into the microphone and into my earbuds right now? Some of you may know me as the host of the Flipped Lifestyle Podcast, but most of you will know me from episode 122 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. On that episode, my wife, Jocelyn, and I came onto the program and told our story of how we discovered the Smart Passive Income Podcast. We listened to Pat Flynn, and we went out and started, built, and grew an amazing online business that would eventually let us quit our jobs and change our family's future forever. That episode would go on to become one of the most popular SPI episodes of all time, And over the years, we've had the great privilege of becoming good friends with Pat. Pat reached out to me last week and said, hey, Shane, the 500th episode of SBI is about to come out. Would you come and flip the script and be the guest host and interview me on the SBI podcast? And without hesitation, I said yes, and that's why I'm here today. Like many of you, the Smart Passive Income podcast really changed my life. I will never forget the first time that I ever heard SBI. Back in 2012, I was a school teacher in Southeast Kentucky. I taught history and coached football, and my wife was an elementary school librarian. One morning, I discovered that someone was mistreating my son at his daycare center. I needed to take the day off to go investigate the matter, but my boss told me no. When I asked for the day off, she said, Mr. Sams, I know your son needs you, but your job needs you too, and you're going to have to handle your personal problems after work. That sent me on a mission to quit my job, become and stay self-employed, and to get my family to a place where nobody could ever tell me I could not be there for my children when they needed me most. I was having absolutely no luck trying to figure out how I could start a business or make a living. And one day I started looking for podcasts about business. One of the first podcasts that I found had this weird little podcast art. If you guys remember the old SBI art, it was a black background and it just had Pat's looking over the bottom of the square. So I clicked over to his website, and the first thing I saw was a picture of Pat Flynn holding his son. And I said, hey, here's a guy that cares about his family. So I downloaded that first episode of the SBI podcast that I found as I was getting ready to head out and mow my grass. So I get on my lawnmower, I put in my earbuds, 
and I hear Pat to start telling this story. He starts talking about how he got fired from his job, how he created this blog, and how all of a sudden people started coming to his website, how he got traffic. Now, just a couple weeks before this, I'd been in the car with my wife, Jocelyn, and for some reason, this thought just bubbled up in my head, and I looked over at her and said, Jocelyn, what if I could get 100 people to pay me $50 a month? And she looked over at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, think about it. If I could get 100 people to pay me $50 a month, I could make $60,000. That would replace our income. We could quit our jobs, and we could be there when our kids needed us. And my wise, beautiful, smarter-than-me wife looked at me and said, yeah, but how are you going to do that? I said, I don't know, but it sounds good. So (laughs) that's that's what I was looking for. I was looking for some way to go out and get 100 people to give me $50 a month. And as I'm driving around my yard on my lawnmower, cutting my grass, I hear Pat talk about how he turned part of his blog into a PDF and how he went and put a buy now button on his website. And all of a sudden, someone clicked a button and gave him $19 for that PDF. And then another person clicked a $19 button and gave him money for that PDF. And sale after sale after sale kept coming in. And in that first product that he launched in his online business, he made 7,900 bucks. And y'all, when I heard him say that, I about wrecked my lawnmower. I about flipped that thing straight off the side of the hill. I left a big fishtail in the grass and I jumped off of it and I ran inside, busted into my kitchen. My wife was over uh, making lunch for one of my kids. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I figured it out. I figured it out. I know exactly how we can get a hundred people to pay us $50 a month. This dude did it selling emails. I'm pretty sure we can do it. And my wife looked at me like I was crazy, but I made her listen to this podcast. And I said, there's this thing called online business. There's this thing called passive income. There's this thing where you can take your knowledge just like Pat did and put it into a product just like Pat did and put it out online. And if you do that, people will send money back. Over the next few days, I devoured every episode of the SBI podcast that was out there. I listened to Pat every single week. And from the inspirational stories of amazing online entrepreneurs that he was bringing on the show to following his own journey as an online entrepreneur, we were able to replace our entire income. We were able to quit our jobs. We were able to become and stay self-employed. And we have been online entrepreneurs ever since. Like many of you out there, I can honestly say, Pat Flynn and the Smart Passive Income Podcast changed our lives, changed our family's future, changed our family tree forever. So on that note, I'm super excited to be the guest host of episode 500 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. We are going to flip the script and I'm going to interview Pat about his online journey. We're going to go back and talk about what it was like when he lost his job how he started, built, and grew his first online business. And we are going to talk about what's coming next for the Smart Passive Income community, what's coming next for the Smart Passive Income podcast, and how Pat plans to serve you and the world for the next 500 episodes of the show. So with a huge congratulations on episode 500 and a big thank you for letting me host the show, without further ado, my guest today is Pat Flynn. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, congratulations, Pat and Team SPI on Session 500 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. It's been a pleasure to be your voiceover for every single episode. Pat Flynn. Pat Flynn, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Weird. That's so weird to hear. Yeah, I'm sure our wives have been looking at us funny all day as we've been marching around Giddy to hang out and talk. But before we get started, dude, congratulations, man. Five. 
hundred podcast that's 10 years of podcasting do you realize this that's crazy man that you make me feel really old when you say that <laughs> well when i met you for the first time you had no beard and now there's gray in your beard and i got gray in my hair so i think we've kind of grown old together through this. yeah for sure for sure but no man thank you so much this is unreal to be here for episode 500 i couldn't have asked for somebody better to come and bring the energy to take whatever like let's just we're gonna have fun and y'all listening we're just going to have a good time and hopefully you can celebrate with us today. Yeah, man. Talk to me a little bit about before all this started. I mean, you, you are one of the most consistent, prolific, relentless podcasters and entrepreneurs I've ever met. But there was a day where you were not a podcaster or an entrepreneur. You were actually an architect. So like, take me back to that. Young Pat, just married gets out of school and you're, and you're and all of a sudden you're drawing buildings like what are you doing back in the day yeah i mean i'm literally sitting in front of a computer for eight to ten hours a day drafting up blueprints and stuff drawings for different clients like gap yard house restaurants some apple retail stores actually we started working on drawings and you know they were interesting but honestly my work as awesome as that sounds was really just boring <laughs> it was not as cool as like, for example, a project manager on a task or on a client um, relationship, because I was just behind the scenes. And, you know, I have my fingerprint, I often say this, I have my fingerprint around dozens of buildings around the United States, and nobody would ever know. Nobody would ever know. Yet, those were some of the hardest times because oftentimes I would do so much work and stay 10, 12 hours a day working on something, turn it in. And it was like, okay, cool. Next thing. All that hard work didn't get really recognized. It didn't get really appreciated. It was always like more things to do to help serve the client and my uppers to get what we needed done. And I felt like a grunt a lot of the time, actually. Was it a dream job growing up that you wanted to be an architect? Or was it something that like, like I became a school teacher because my dad was like, you'll always have a job. It was like the ultimate fallback safety valve for them. Was it something like that? Or like, why did you even become an architect in the first place? Or what happened? Yeah, I'm remembering like when I was asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up when I was a kid? It was not an architect at first, actually. Architecture started entering the picture around high school when I started thinking about my career and my future. An architect was right there in the traditional family I had with doctor, lawyer, architect, all the really prestigious jobs that give you a good career. So I, that was kind of within that. And when I was applying for college, I uh, decided to, when I was applying to Berkeley, to apply for the College of Environmental Design, which is where the architecture program was, because for two reasons. Number one, that was most interesting to me. And also number two, I thought I was being smart because I was like, okay, all my friends are choosing biology and all these other sciences related things. I'm going to choose something else because I'm guessing that other people will choose architecture less. So I'll have a higher chance of getting to school. I have no idea whether or not that's true or not. But I got in. But when I start thinking about like when I was a kid and what I wanted to be, I wanted to be a baseball player. I was actually the first person on my team to be able to throw the ball over the plate. And then all of a sudden everybody kept growing and then I stopped. So then I wasn't capable of keeping up with everybody who could hit homers off me all the time. Then I played soccer. I wanted to be a soccer player for a while. There was actually a time where I did want to be a lawyer. And I remember this specifically because it was, I think it was ninth or 10th grade. Again, the prestigious job that paid a lot of money, you know, a lot of clout came with that. And then I went on a job shadow. So job shadow in downtown San Diego, we got to go uh, through a public defender's office. And there was a group of us who all marked that we wanted to be lawyers. We were walking through. And honestly, I knew from that day forward that I would never want to be a lawyer in my entire life. <laughs> Why is that? Just because everybody was wearing suits or what? I mean, like, what were they doing? Yeah, no, it wasn't the suits. Like, I was excited about that part in architecture, even though I never really got to that point yet. 
we were discussing like some of the cases that some of the people were working on there. And maybe it was because I was at the public defender's office versus like a different kind of lawyer. But these people were celebrating the fact that they were able to get criminals lower life sentences or something like that. You know, it was just like, oh, you're kind of playing devil's advocate here. And that doesn't really feel good. It doesn't really align with who I want to be, no matter how much money would come my way. Yeah, super heavy, man. So you go on, you do become an architect, you get married. And then we fast forward a little bit and this year, you're like, I did it. I got, I snuck in, in the place nobody was paying attention to. And I got in where nobody else was applying. I got my architect. I tricked this amazing woman into marrying me. (laughs) You're starting a family, right? And like, then all of a sudden you go to work one day and you just lose your job. Did you even expect it the day that you lost your job? You know, I didn't expect it, but I also partly was not half surprised either because a lot of my other coworkers were getting laid off. This was around 2008. A lot of people were getting let go and they were, we were letting go of people who just weren't pulling their weight and I was pulling all their weight and then some. So I was sort of banking on the fact that I was doing a lot more than I was asked of so that we could last through the recession and I would still continue to keep my job and I would take on other people's experiences and job descriptions so that I could get further ahead and and increase my resume in a way uh, to have that job security. Yet, I think they held me on as long as possible. I remember walking into my boss's office and he was like, hey, sit down, Pat. And I knew something was up because he would never, ever say that. He usually just brought me in, tell me what to do, and then I'd walk out. But he told me to sit down and I was like, oh, something's coming. And then he pauses for a moment. I could tell something hard was going to come up. And he said, Pat, you know, I'm so sorry about this. You're one of the hardest working, youngest, brightest guys we've ever had in the firm. But unfortunately, we have to let you go. And man, when you consider the fact that you had just gotten married, you're planning on starting a family, literally like maxing out your 401k. Everything is the way it was supposed to be. I was following life the way that it was all mapped out to be for me. And then having that just like, like, you know, when you see like dominoes going, it's like just automatic. And then all of a sudden, all you have to do is put your hand down and it stops everything. Like everything that was ahead of you is now worthless. I didn't know what to do. I actually freaked out. I, I started to close up. I had a lot of anxiety. My initial reaction, like most of the time when there's an issue is I try to solve the problem as fast as possible. So I start negotiating with him, right? I don't even talk about this very much, but I was like, okay, what if we do this? Maybe I take a month off and I come back and he's like, we don't know what's going to happen. We cannot do that. And then I go back to my desk and I start calling around all the engineers and plumbers and mechanics that we've ever worked with, old architecture businesses that we've ever had contact with. And I start begging, like literally on the phone, kind of like not necessarily all the way under my desk, but I'm on my chair hunched over so people don't hear me. And I'm like, please, is there anything that you have open? I don't care what it is. I just, I couldn't imagine life without architecture because that was what I had planned out. And I remember going home that day and my wife was getting off of work and she was coming over to the apartment. She opens the door and I was just bawling. I was like, I failed you. Like, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm not who you thought I was going to be because again, this job was taken away from me. And it's just when I sit in retrospect and think about this, it's like, wow, all those things that I was telling myself were a result of something that I had no control over. And I was writing this story in my head about what I was going to become or who I wasn't going to be based on something that I legit had no control over. But yeah, she was there for me and she was the reason why I'm here today. She was just like, we're going to get through it. We're going to get through it. And that was key for me. The fact, the we part was the most important part. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. Because no matter what happens, I always have a partner with me. And that was huge. You said something really interesting there, too. You concluded later, of course, I think everybody on the other side of the tidal wave kind of realizes there's things you can't control in life. There's things you can control in life. But you said, 
I was making it. I was doing everything the way it was mapped out for me. It was mapped out the way it was supposed to be. Do you think all that anxiety and stuff you felt when you got fired came from that you had bought into that? Like, this is it. You go to school, you get married, someone gives you a job, you have a 401k, you retire, you die. You're like, like, is that where some of that came from? Because you were kind of afraid to tell April you had messed it up or something? Yeah, 100%. I mean, when it's like they mapped it out for me, it's like, who's they? They can be my parents. And they were because they had lived their life in that way and support of the family. And I was kind of following their footsteps in that way. They is school. Here is the plan. You go to college and you get a job and this happens. They is just my friends and everybody else around me, my coworkers. Um, I didn't know of anything else. Like, what else was there, right? And here I was getting, I thought I was going to be homeless. And the funny thing is, again, in retrospect, I'm like, that was impossible to happen because of my parents and her parents. Like, they were going to, if push comes to shove, like, they would take us in and help us out, right? It wouldn't be ideal, but they would help us out. And guess what? That's exactly what they did. So April, because we were... um we were getting married. We were engaged. She moved back in with her parents to San Diego. I moved back in with my parents in San Diego. Back in my old room, the one that I like left to go to college for, here I am back in it. And it has like been half converted into like my dad's office now. It's just really strange. And again, every day I woke up, opened my eyes. There I am back in my old room. I'm like, wow, I'm back where I was even before going to college and working hard. Like I just, this is a failure. How old were you at the time when that happened? Uh, 25. Dude, so you all were engaged. I thought you all had just got married. You're sitting there at the desk calling plumbers going, this girl's not going to marry me. I have got to have a job. Uh, She has an out still. She still has an out at this point. (laughs) I did not know that. I thought you all were just married, man. That is Now, I can see why you had a lot of stress and anxiety on top of uh, losing the job. So tell me this. Had you been blogging about architecture to this point, or was this now right, you're you're freaking out, you, you can't find a job, and you discover online business? Where did you discover blogging? Was it before this or after the getting fired? I discovered blogging actually in college. There was a platform, I don't know if you remember this platform called Zanga, X-A-N-G-A, and it was literally like just... It was one of the first platforms where you could just kind of write content and select from different themes. They were all super generic looking, and most people who use them just documented like a journal the things they did that day nobody ever I I didn't know of anybody using it to sort of teach anything back in college and I had written maybe a few months or a couple semesters worth of kind of what I was doing in the band and you know those kinds of things fun things that have happened in college different parties I went to and whatnot but never really did anything with that in fact that then just expired when I was studying for a particular exam when I was still in architecture, hadn't known I was getting laid off. There was this particular exam called the LEED exam, L-E-E-D, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It was the most difficult test I've ever taken. I mean, I graduated magna cum laude from Berkeley, and I still, on my first practice test, got 25%, which was like worse than failure for an exam, especially somebody who grew up more of a perfectionist. So to help me out with that exam, I knew that I was going to have to create a lot of resources to help me memorize and create patterns within this thing that I had to memorize for this test. And so I created a blog to just literally be a place for content that I could go back to to study from because I was traveling a lot. I was on the road. I went to Florida to work with the Hilton crew and a few other clients. And I was always on the road. So I always didn't want to take 25 pounds of books with me. So I just put all the things I was learning, essentially my notes online, and I had the added benefit. And this was the plan. I was going to share that website, that blog, with my boss and be like, hey, you see how much initiative I'm taking to pass this exam? I want to offer this 
to anybody else in the company who wants to study too. Nowhere in my mind did I ever think that this could turn into anything other than just a resource to help me and some of my coworkers pass this exam. I wasn't savvy enough to understand that. Well, also because it's online, it could help how many other people around the world too. That was a story about that blog. It was actually initially called inthelead.com. L-E-E-D. Later I had to change it because I got a cease and desist letter, but that's a different story. <laughs> you know, you don't know what you don't know when you just start throwing your study stuff on your own little virtual filing cabinet so you can access it in Florida that a big corporation may come after you at some point, right? Oh, dude, that, that almost derailed me. I mean, there's several of those kinds of stories, but I remember passing the exam going, yay, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't need this anymore. I'm moving on to the next exam. When I got let go, I had a lot of time on my hands, right? So I was listening to podcasts. Podcasts had just started becoming something that people were were getting involved with, you know, with the iPod and, and podcasts. And I discovered this podcast called Internet Business Mastery. And I was looking for any kind of solution. So I was looking up things like business and how to start a business. I remember picking up a book at Barnes & Noble. It was How to Start a Business for Dummies and literally reading through that. And I remember another time a man had come up to me and he said, hey, are you looking to make some extra money? Which is very shady sounding just now that I'm talking about it. But I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, why don't you come to this meeting tonight? There's a whole bunch of us talking about this really cool opportunity. And me being desperate at the time, I was like, okay. So first of all, that's a very dangerous situation. Second of all, I went and it was this well-crafted concert of an event choreographed which was just essentially, I'm not going to name any names or brands, but it was just a pyramid scheme situation that was happening where I was going to eventually have to sell my friends on a bunch of things that they shouldn't need or don't need at the time. So anyway, I backed out of that, thankfully, although it was very intriguing, especially the double diamond platinum members who came and shared how this business changed their life. The more desperate you are, the more that double diamond platinum level looks <laughs> like in your life when you go to those things. Like, oh man, if I could just get single platinum diamond, like that would be cool. But double diamond, maybe one day. But I found this podcast, Internet Business Mastery. Huge credit to Sterling and Jay, who were the hosts. Changed my life. Changed my life. They they became two people who I could trust online. I didn't meet them until much later but I became friends with them through their show. That's what drew me later to starting a podcast because I had seen what a podcast had done for me. And what did it do for me? It gave me inspiration. It gave me some specificity into actual actionable things I could do. And it gave me hope. But there was one interview uh, in particular that was on that show. It was with a man named Cornelius Fitchner, who was teaching people how to pass the project management exam online on his website. And he was very open with how much money he was making. He was very open with how he did this. And of course, me being somebody who was in an industry that had a lot of exams and I had just taken this really difficult one and knew about it, I put two and two together and I was like, wow, maybe there's something I can do with this website. So discovering a little bit more, diving a little bit deeper, I was like, okay, first thing I need to know is like how many people are going to come to my website? Once I start sharing it with people somehow, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I just need to figure out if people are actually coming. So I started to include a tool called Google Analytics on the website, which I didn't do before because there was no need for me to. I wake up the next day and there's literally thousands of visits. And I'm like, this can't be right. Did I visit the website a thousand times in like trying to fix it or something? In your sleep, like clicking refresh. Exactly. <laughs> like, is it hacked or something? I have no idea what's going on. And then I noticed that like the time on the site is like 12 minutes. Like people's average time on the site is 12 minutes, which is huge, uh, especially nowadays. But what ended up happening and I found out was that 
people were linking to this website on architecture blogs, architecture forums. Like, hey, I found this random website. This like, they were calling it like a diamond in the rough, which is funny because that said in Disney a lot. And that, uh, I remember that phrase, this resource that was essentially giving away all the things that people needed to know for free. So it was just getting spread about. And of course, Google picked it up because it was shared and, and linked to so often. There's a lot of backlinks that I didn't even know what a backlink was or keyword research or how that was done. And then I remember one day turning on comments, turning on comments, and then this flood of questions started coming in from random people from who knows where. And I was like, wow, they're asking me these questions. And I started to retreat. I was like, I turned them right off. I was like, holy crap, like, I am I even allowed to answer these questions? Like, who am I to answer these questions? I know the answers to some of them, some of them I don't. Like, I don't wanna, this isn't what I meant to do. Like, I just, I'm trying to figure things out. And again, I hadn't seen what was right in front of me, which was the opportunity to help and serve people who needed this exam material. Like, taking this exam was a huge dollar amount to take, whether you fail or not. And it was a huge pain in the butt to go and find study materials. So. Eventually, I ended up investing what little money I had into the Internet Business Mastery Academy. So this is their program. I started connecting with some people there, Mark Mason, Sean Noonan, a few other names come to mind. And they started providing a lot of inspiration and help and direct help to me, in fact. And then something interesting happened. Uh, Sterling or, or Jeremy Franson, Sterling was his sort of stage name. He mentioned in a podcast that he was going to be moving to San Diego, which is where I'm from. And so my heart started beating when I heard this because I, oh my gosh, like this guy who I idolized, who's helping me out with this, I'm trying to figure out business. He's moving to San Diego. And he said, hey, when we get to San Diego, maybe anybody who's in town can meet up and we can kind of have a mastermind meeting together. And I was like, what's a mastermind meeting? That sounds like official. And so anyway, he shares in the forums that he's gonna be at a Panera Bread. He puts the address in, I put it in Yahoo Maps or whatever. And it's literally 0.9 miles away from where I live. I'm just like, this is fate or somebody's having a really sick, cruel joke being played on me right now. I drive up in my Toyota Tacoma and I have no idea what the meeting's going to be like. And I don't like I drive by the Panera. I drive by first, just kind of scope it out. And there's this group of guys sitting around and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's them. And I recognize Jeremy. And then I drive out of the parking lot because I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. Do I even belong there? You were afraid of another double diamond moment. I was. So I turn around because I'm like, you know, there's something here that is for me or else this wouldn't have happened in this way. So I approach the guys and they're very welcoming. They're very friendly. They extend their hand. I shake them. They introduce themselves. And then we have our meeting. And the meeting consisted of all of us going around in circle, which I'm like, oh my gosh, that means it's eventually going to get around to me. So I sit on the end where I know it's going to be later. And then I just start listening. And everybody starts sharing their business and what they're up to and what they need help with. And then everybody pitches in. I have nothing to say. I have no idea what even they're talking about in, in some cases. And then eventually it gets around to me and I'm like, hey, I'm Pat. I just got let go from my architecture job. And one guy was like, congrats. And I was like, no, no, I don't feel that yet. Um, but I'm just struggling to kind of figure out what's going on. And they're like, okay, so are you doing anything online? Or are you just trying to figure it out? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to figure it out, but I have a website. And they're like, what's the website? And then I tell them about it. And they're like, okay, cool. That's like a very niche website. And, you know, we've never heard of this exam. And I'm like, of course you haven't, because like nobody in the world knows about it. Then they go, okay, well, what's your traffic like? And I'm like five, 6,000 visits. And they're like, oh, that's pretty good, you know, for a month. That's actually a lot you can work with. And I'm like, no, that's actually per day. They're like, wait, what? 6,000 views per day? And I was like, 
yeah, is that that's good? And they're like, that is amazing. What are you doing to to potentially monetize? And I was like, nothing. And they're like, oh my God. Like the whole conversation, all of them start pitching in for literally the next 20 minutes on what they would do and, and what I should do. And even Jeremy was like, you should write an ebook. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. I've never heard of that before. They're like, oh, well, you can create a PDF file. I'm like, I know PDF file. And they're like, you can make one and then you can sell it on your website. I'm like, people would buy that? And they're like, yes, think about it. People can get it right now when they need that study material. They don't have to wait for anything. And likely you could charge a lot cheaper than these other guys that are out there that are hundreds of dollars. And I was like, wow, you're right. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't even know what to do. They're just like, write the book. And then I promise you when you have this thing finished, you're going to figure it out. Like you are going to work to figure it out. And that was a really good piece of advice because my mind was like, well, I don't know how to sell it. I don't know. Like, how do I even do that? How do I even charge for this? What about taxes? Like all that stuff, all those questions I had, they were like, just write the book. Because when you have this thing that you know is now valuable, you're going to figure out those answers when you need them. And I was like, okay. So I spent the next month and a half writing this ebook. In the meantime, I was also putting some, another person recommended I put Google AdSense on my website. And what, you just put some code on your website and you can start making money? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, that sounds illegal. And they're like, no, because again, all the things that I could say to counter that this was actually possible, I was thinking about. Why, why do we do that, man? You know what I mean? Like, why do we, because you and I have now in the last 10 years since we've been helping other people, we've seen, I'm sure you've seen the same thing I have. You always see this resistance to it. I don't know why that is. Like, like they fight the fact, like, am I expert? Can I help someone else? Is this really real that you can make money like this? I wonder where that comes from in us. I don't know if it's a training like we were talking about earlier or or the fear or the anxiety. I don't know where that comes from, man. I think a lot of it has to do with how we've been conditioned as we've grown up to believe certain things. And maybe it's the fact that it's so easy that it almost undermines all the hard work and schooling and all the things that we put in before that was supposed to happen a certain way. I don't know if that's it. I also know that because it's technology-based, because it's new, new can often mean scary and you know getting into waters that you're just not familiar with i don't know but it always shows up and it still continues to show up even recently with the launch of spi pro our membership and like all these new things you'd think that after 12 years of doing this that i'd be over the nervousness and the fear and the resistance but no it's always there i just know what it means now i know it means that there's something awesome on the other end i know it means that it's something that's important to me i know it means that i'll have to probably find help which was another thing I struggled with when I tried to figure this all out myself initially. But I added some AdSense on my website. Literally the next day I woke up and it was $1.18 in my account. Let's go. Let's and I go, was like, baby. let's go. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and, and I know you've experienced your first dollar or some odd cents. Uh, it was 11 cents. You were 10 times better at this than me when you started, son. <laughs> 11 cents. Right? That wasn't even good math, 11 times. <laughs> But that matters so much because it's like that wasn't there before and here it is now. Let's scale it up. Let's keep going. And so the AdSense started to increase. I started to make maybe $15, $20 a day while I was writing my book. And I was like, wow, I'm, I almost feel like I'm getting paid to write this thing now in a way, even though that still wasn't enough to you know go off and get my own apartment or anything yet. It was a start, right? It was a start and it, like those little wins motivated me. And then I remember after a month and a half, I wrote this book it was a study guide. It wasn't the best design, but it was as good as it could get for the skill that I had. I didn't have any money to pay anybody else to do it for me. And then I was like, okay, guys, I'm in the forums. I'm like, okay, I got the book done. What do I do next? And they're like, okay, you got to go sell it. And I'm like, I know, but how? 
okay, here are the tools you need. Here's what you need to have on your website. So they hooked me up with a tool. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's other ones like it now, SamCart or Gumroad or any of these other ones that allow you to essentially upload your file, get a buy button that you can then put in your website that literally will connect everything together. And so I just put the buy now button on the website. And I remember I was working on it all night and I put it on the website at one in the morning. And I was like, okay, this is a big deal. Like, this is it. This is the moment. And so I put it up on the website and it's just there. And I refresh the page. It's there. I go on my other computer. It's there. I'm like, okay, it's actually there now. Now what? Well, it's like 1.30 in the morning, so I'm just going to go to bed. And I wake up. And I wake up at 6. And I go and check my emails. Nothing. And I, I start feeling very deflated. I start feeling like maybe this was all for nothing. This was a complete waste of time. Everybody had it wrong. These guys are liars. These guys are scammers. Like this stuff is not real. Like maybe the Cornelius guy who was on that episode, those guys hired to say those things so that I can join the, like I just started making up this story about how I was scammed. But then I realized, okay, it's only been literally four and a half hours. Maybe I could wait a little longer. And who buys study guides at six in the morning? So I was like, okay. So I go and I come back to the computer at eight o'clock, still nothing. Come back, 8.30, nothing. At 8.41 a.m., I see an email in my account that says, notification of payment received from PayPal. Check my account, $18.41, because it's $19.99 minus the whatever fee from PayPal. I'd made my first sale. And holy crap, the feelings that I had, the rush of both excitement and nervousness and fear all at the same time, I had literally almost a panic attack because again, I had worked on something, I had created it, I put it up there and I actually made money. That was really cool. But then I was like, what if this person doesn't like it? What if they ask for a refund? What if they sue me because they don't pass the exam even though they bought my stuff and then I'm actually gonna be homeless again even though I wasn't homeless in the first place? But then I went on a walk because I had to think about these things. Came back and I had another sale while I was on a walk. And I was like, whoa, like this happened while I was out. Let's just see how the month goes. And every day, seven to nine to 10, sometimes up to 15 to 20 sales coming in. Then at near the end of the month, I started getting emails from some of my customers. And I like, I remember that one of the first ones coming in, I was so scared because I was like, oh, if I open this, it could go one of two ways. This is the first haterade that's getting poured over my head for starting this business. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? Like it's either going to be Gatorade or haterade. I'm not sure. It's going to be one of the two. So I open it and this person just right away was like, thank you so much. I passed the exam thanks to your guide. And that felt so good. Felt so, And the cool thing about this email was he said, Pat, like, hey, Pat, just I wanted to send this email to you, let you know I passed the exam. Your guide was essential for it. Thank you. And I was like, wow, that felt really good. And this person who I didn't even know, never had met in person in my real life, was recognizing me and thanking me for the work that I did. People who I saw every single day in architecture never gave me that kind of thanks and recognition sometimes. And again, more of those emails started pouring in. So by the end of the month, $7,908.55 in profit. What did you get paid at your architecture job? So I was getting paid gross $4,500 a month. 
That's double. That's pretty much double on your ebook. Like that you didn't even know existed before you went to this random meeting with a bunch of internet marketing masterminders, man. Like that's unbelievable. That my mind is I didn't I did not know that. I did not know that part of the story that it was like, hey, I started a blog and I have a PDF and I think this button works and eight grand. That's double. <laughs> you call it then you're calling April. You know, I really I got fired on purpose because I knew I knew, baby. Come on. Can we get married now? Please don't leave me. Right? <laughs> no, I showed her and she was like, is this real? Like, and I was like, I think it is real. And I remember because the money was in my checking account eventually after I transferred it from PayPal. And I was like, it got in the checking account. Like it actually got through. Like I thought it was some funny money that was like, if I triggered it, to transfer like the fbi was going to show like literally i was thinking these thoughts like I, I just could not believe it but here's the other part of the story that's interesting even though the next month i had made nine thousand dollars the month after that it was in the five-figure range i was still applying for architecture jobs in san diego wow because i didn't believe that this was going to last i didn't believe that it was real i didn't believe that this was the path that i was supposed to be on i was still sitting in chairs during interviews showing them that I knew how to do AutoCAD and just waiting for calls. And thankfully, nobody called back. <laughs> when we started our journey, you know, I started emailing you because it was back before you had 19 billion people emailing you all the time. And I remember me and you were emailing back and forth and I would tell you what was happening. And I remember I have the email still where I told you we quit our job. I still have them too. That's what I'm talking about, man. It was funny because like this fear you had, even, even after we quit our jobs, we're 13 months in, until we came to see you in San Diego at that one day business breakthrough in June. I mean, it was still every day getting up going, oh, get our resumes ready, honey. We're going back to, work. I mean, it was just this constant fear that there was no way this could have could keep going. And I remember after one day business breakthrough, we talked to you and Ducker, y'all gave us some amazing advice. We had the most unbelievable two months that I still can't believe happened to, to, to this day. And in August of two, like two years in was the point that I was like, this is the point of no return. I know I can do this. No matter what happens, we'll figure it out. We're never going back. So w when was that for you? Like, when was that point of no return when that fear was like, wow, I think even if the lead exam site burned to the ground, I could still pull something off and do this. Like, what, what was your point of no return when you knew you had it under control? Yeah, I mean, there were two different moments. There was the point of, I don't want to ever go back to what I was doing. Not that it was a point of no return, but it was a point of, okay, I'm moving on to the next phase of my life now. And that was May of 2009. So seven months-ish after I started making money from my architecture stuff, I get a call on my cell phone. I think it was a Razor flip phone at this time. It was from the boss who had let me go. And he was checking up on me. He said, hey, Pat, like, I just... You know, I know we left on tough terms and, you know, it's no, nothing personal. I hope you understand. I was like, no, it was, it was fine. He's like, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're doing okay. And I'm like, I'm actually doing really well right now. Um, and he's like, it's okay. I know it can be tough. I may be doing better than you, son. I might be doing better than you, bro. I'm just telling you, you want to work for me? You come work for me. No, I didn't say that. No, it was, it was like, I could tell he was sensitive to what had happened and was just wanting to make sure I was cool. But also he had an offer. He said that he had left the firm as well, but on his own choice, and he took some of the clients with him. He had started his own company. He had brought some of my favorite people in the world, some of my coworkers along with him. And he said, Pat, I want you to move back to Irvine. I will pay for your move. I will pay for a year's rent, and I'm going to give you a promotion. I want you to work for me. 
And I did not hesitate more than two seconds before I said, you know, thank you for the offer, but no thanks. I think I'm good with where I'm going. Obviously, he was very surprised and started asking questions. And, you know, he's very supportive. So thankfully, he wasn't like, that's dumb. Like, don't do that. You're losing out on this. Like, I, I bet you he could have argued me back. But honestly, I knew this was the next phase of my life. This was the moment when, and you've seen this at FlynnCon, when I transitioned from the corporate ladder, I took my final foot off that ladder and brought it to the entrepreneurial ladder, a ladder that had much more upside, that was a lot more fun, that could provide a lot more freedom for me because I had just experienced several months of that freedom now as a result of what I had just done. That was to me the point of no return to what I was doing before. There were still moments though where I'm like, what if this was just literally a flash in the pan? What if it is something that goes away? What if, you know, there were so many what ifs. But I think once I saw that I started something new, like my uh, security guard trading website and then the food trucker website and then smartpassiveincome.com started to generate its own income and gain a huge following. I was like, wow, I can do whatever I choose to put my mind to. <laughs> whatever I want to focus on, I think I can make it work because I kind of have the idea now that, you know, as long as you're serving people within that community and you really, really work hard to solve their pain points, then you can create a business out of that. And that's true. Yeah, man. I, I wrote this down as you were telling the story because, you know, I mean, we're friends, but man, I consider you like a mentor. Like I do, man. I mean, and you've been so gracious to me and my family and like, just like the openness you have, like with your community. I do want to talk about like why you started SBI, some of your favorite episodes and things like that. But like when I hear your journey, I hear everyone's journey. It's like the first thing you do is just like, well, what do I know that nobody knows I know? I just have to tell them and maybe money will come back. And then there's fear. And then you create content. And then there's fear. And you engage with content. And then there's fear. And then you're like, am I expert enough? And then there's more fear. And then it's like, but then you did the great thing of going to surround yourself with other people trying to do this, creating a product, putting a PayPal button on it or whatever. And like, and then the fear comes back. And then it's not like the fear goes away. And I think that's what I've learned most from you over the years is like, you know, there's lots of tools and lots of trainings and lots of everything that we do online. But when that fear comes in, I just see Pat do the next thing. I've always watched you do the next thing. And that's always given me the courage to do the next thing. And when I see my students or your students, if they just keep doing the next thing, that's the people that make it. So I guess that leads me to like, so you're doing the lead ex exam. Okay. You realize you can do all this other stuff. Why start SPI? Like what was the inspiration for that? Was it somebody in your circle that told you to do it? Or did you realize you were good at this and wanted to pay that forward? Like why SPI at all? Yeah, I mean, SPI happened because as I was creating this other business in the architecture space, a lot of my architecture friends who were also laid off had started hearing about it. I was telling them kind of what I was trying to do. And then I was showing them the website and people were seeing the comments and how much of a audience I was building. And I didn't tell them at the time, like how much money I was making, but they were curious because they were like, how is it doing compared to architecture? Like, do you think this is going to be your full-time thing now? And I was, I didn't know the answer at that time. But all I knew was a lot of other people wanted to know how to do what I was trying to figure out how to do. They didn't have the ability to afford any courses. They didn't have the ability to even believe in themselves. So I wanted to show them that, hey, I was just in your position not too long ago. Let me share everything that I did, good or bad. And you can make your own decisions on what to do with that information. But I'm just going to tell it like it is. 
the reason why I wanted to share this was because I wanted to get in front of those people who are trying to take advantage of people who had just gone through what I had gone through. Ah, uh, the, the diamond, double, double diamond, diamond, dimers. That's what you were trying to do. Stop those guys to get in front of them. Exactly. Man, some people, yeah. When I was researching internet business after actually was discovering internet business mastery and I was like, okay, who else is out there? I mean, I think I got lucky that I discovered them pretty early on because I discovered so many other people who talked a good talk. Like if I didn't get uh, with with Jeremy or Jason, probably could have convinced me to spend much more money and not get as much back. And so that number one taught me that serve first and, and help others like Jeremy and Jason did with their podcast, because that then convinced me and uh, allowed me to trust them to then pay for something. But secondly, everybody was just like, How, how'd you do it? Could you just share? And I was like, yeah, I'll share it. I'm going to share it for free. I'm not going to charge you. I'm not going to pretend like I'm some expert. I'm just going to share exactly what I did because that's all I know. <laughs> so I built smartpassiveincome.com. But the funny part was, and some of you may have heard this story, it wasn't initially called smartpassiveincome.com. It was called Passive Aggressive Income Dude. <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. I did not know that. I did you not. didn't know this? So the acronym is P-A-I-D. Passive aggressive income dude. Ah, I see what you did there. That's pretty smart. I see what you did there. Yep. I hired a person on eBay with some of my architecture money that I had gotten to draw a character that would become like the Geico Gecko version for passive aggressive income dude. And it was a superhero who had PAID on his chest, like a Superman with like a cape. And then I looked at that and I was like, is this who I want to become? Like, am, am, am I a superhero here and I'm going to rescue the world? And I was like, no, because I don't know how to do that. All I know is I built a business and it's working. Let me just show other people how to do that and get in front of all these other people who are trying to take advantage. And so I scrapped that. Thankfully, I have been looking for that drawing. I do not know where it is. It's, it's not in my archive anywhere. That was a great, a great call. Good job on that. That was, that was probably an early first decision that was excellent uh, in what you did there. <laughs> yeah, I was not good at branding back then, but I was good at recognizing that that's not the direction I wanted to go. So smart passive income came from, well, what do people ultimately want? What was I earning? I was earning passive income, a way for literally earning money while in your sleep. But that sounded dirty. There was a lot of websites that were talking about that. But I wanted to bring some truth to it. And I wanted to have people approach that in a smart way, which was not pay for this thing and then sell it and then live a beach laptop lifestyle. It's like, you got to take a smart approach to who it is you're serving and learn what they need help with, just like I did, and then serve them in that way. And that's why Surf First has always been a part of my philosophy. Your, your earnings are a byproduct of how well you serve your audience. And of course, passive income was a big topic at the time because Tim Ferriss had just come out with the four-hour work week. So all those things combined, I was like, okay, it's passive income. I want that in my domain name because in my research, when back then, if you had your keyword in your domain name, you'd be able to rank a little bit higher for those keywords. So I was like, okay, cool. But passiveincome.com was taken. So I was like, okay, let's just put smart in front of it. I want people to take the smart approach to this. Not the fast approach, not the get rich quick approach, but the smart approach, the one that's going to give them hopefully a long-term return on the work that they do to serve an audience. And so Smart Passive Income was born at the end of 2008. And I just started writing about the things I was doing on the architecture stuff and how I quit my job and how I had got let go and the things that I was trying to work on. I also, at the time, in addition to building the architecture website and sharing my income reports, which was something that put myself on the map, very grateful that 
I had been inspired to do that, there was actually a personal finance blog called mymoneyblog.com. And the reason why I loved mymoneyblog.com, I don't even know if it's around anymore, but I was a big personal finance blog nerd when I was in architecture. That was the only one that was legit sharing the exact mutual funds that he was investing in. He didn't, he didn't ever share his name, but he's like, hey, this month I earned this much and I'm putting this much in this account, this much in this account, this much in this account. And I was like, that's so handy to see like exactly what's happening. You're not just like put this here and that there. You're literally showing me through your own example how you're doing that. So I brought that forward into the online business space. Apparently, I wasn't the first person to do this. There were some other people, John Chow, et cetera. But I think I really put it on the map. And, you know, a lot of other people have started to do this, John Lee Dumas, et cetera. I'm, I'm grateful that I've been able to pave the way for more transparency and authenticity online, which was missing at the time. So I started other experiments. I started writing for eHow.com to earn more passive income. eHow was a website where anybody could write an article about anything. It, get put, it gets put into the eHow library. They put AdSense on it for you. And then you do a rev share with them on the AdSense on your articles. Yeah. So I was making like 150 bucks a month with that. And even though it's funny, because even though that paled in comparison to the architecture stuff, those articles started to get ranked really high. The ones that I was uh, writing and the ones that I was writing about on SPI. And I attracted the whole crowd of eHow members to my website to learn how to do eHow better and earn more passive income in that way. And that's when I started getting into keyword research because keyword research was important for that. And then keyword research turned into a, a challenge with a friend of mine at the time to create a niche website from scratch to build. And then I shared that exactly how it went down. That was the securityguardtraininghq.com website, which after 73 days became number one in Google and just completely launched our affiliate earnings on Smart Passive Income. Because when people saw that experiment and exactly how I did everything start to finish, they were like, oh, Pat, you just shared exactly everything how to do from scratch. I'm going to do the exact same thing that you've laid out and I'm going to click on your affiliate links to pay you back in return. And I remember my affiliate earnings for the hosting company I was promoting at the time was like hundreds of dollars a month. Literally after that experiment, it went to like seven to $8,000 a month and the keyword research tools and all this stuff. And that was a surprise. I had not started Smart Passive Income to make money. It was there to show how I was making money elsewhere. I also talked a little bit about an iPhone app company that I had with my friend from high school that we then sunset and other experiments that went down from Food Trucker and just a whole bunch of other things. And I remember there was this one time I commissioned Chase Reeves to design my website. And he actually came over to the house, locked himself in my office for two days and came out with this beautiful website. And he put a placeholder tagline on the homepage that said the crash test dummy of online business. And I was like, I've never heard of that before. Like, what means you say that? He's like, oh, it's just a placeholder. But that's kind of like what I think of you because you always try these things and then you like share all the information for all of us for our benefit. And you just kept that? I kept that, dude. That was a flippant placeholder. Not, an, I thought that was a master stroke when I first saw that. I told Jocelyn, I was like, that's genius. Man, he must have really worked hard on that one. But it was like, nope. Nope. That was, that was a placeholder. Thanks to Chase. Thank you, Chase. Yeah, Chase Chase Reeves and, and shout out to the guys over at Fizzle, Corbett Barr, and, and back then Caleb Wojcik, Barrett Brooks. Uh, those guys were key sort of relationships in what I was doing. But to go back to Jeremy and Jason, like they inspired me to get started, but they also inspired me to start a podcast, which came out in 2010. And the podcast, as you know, has been just, here we are 500 episodes later. And, and that's where it started, thanks to them and their podcast helping me. I just wanted to pay it forward. And Man, it's turned into something incredible. It uh, the podcast is great because, like, at the time, 
when we were trying to start our first online business, I just was like, well, we've just got to, when Jocelyn finally got on board, she was not in until I proved something could happen. But when she got on board, she was like, well, how did Pat do it? And I'm like, well, he's got a podcast and he has an email list and you click things. So let's just start there. And so we were wondering, like, let's just, let's start a podcast. Let's figure out how to do it. Let's try to do this. Let's try to do that. And I'll tell you, not just your story, because I did hear you way back in the day when I heard you talk about that. Like I said in the intro, I about fell off my lawnmower and killed seven people in my neighborhood. Like when I heard what happened and what you did. But there was another episode. It was the scrapbook lady. What was her name? Um, yeah, Lane Amen. Lane, yeah. When, you, when she talked about unfair advantages. Unfair advantages. Well, my unfair advantages were I sound like a redneck and I started out my high school football coaching career 0 and 10. When I heard her say that, I was like, but how many people sound like me? Nope, not many. So I should start a podcast because not many people sound like me. How many people have the experience of going from 0 and 10 to 6 and 5? I go home happy more Friday nights than not. And like your podcast inspired us to start the Elementary Librarian podcast, riveting. I know it. Everybody's dying to find that one in the archive somewhere, right? Where Jocelyn interviewed librarians. But dude, podcasting is just, there's nothing like it. I know video is awesome. I know blogging is incredible. You just build that relationship. So like those, that, that's two of my favorites. The one where you first told your story and the unfair advantage episode. Other than me and Jocelyn, of course. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what are some of your favorite episodes of the podcast? Well, that is one of my favorite episodes for sure. Episode 122 with you guys was incredible. People talk about that all the time. There's a, a number of different standout ones. You know, there's episode 51, which was the episode where I got to interview Tim Ferriss, which was a huge deal for me. He was, you know, I was reading his book as soon as I got let go. And that was very inspirational to what SPI eventually became. And I remember that episode because I spent the first five and a half minutes fanboying the entire time, not realizing it when I was recording. And I eventually had to like, and that scene to then actually have the actual interview. I was just so, so thankful for him. There's so many episodes. Jeez, there were a lot of success story episodes early on that were really inspirational to a lot of people where we had all types of niches from the wedding industry to Magic the Gathering, people just sharing how they were carving their own little niche. You know, the riches are in the niches, I often say. And those were really inspirational. And that was kind of the first time I, I realized how powerful a success story can be, not just like a testimonial on your sales page or whatever, but like when you actually go through the story, like the hero's journey, the here's where I was, here was the challenge, here's where I entered into a new world and was trying to figure, uh, figure things out, here were the obstacles, and look at where we are now on the other end. And I use that same formula for marketing and storytelling all the time now, and it's so key. So to bring that onto the show, I started noticing how powerful that was. And I think that's why your episode's been so key. There was another episode that actually stands out. It's episode 263 with Clay Collins, former CEO of Lean Pages. And I remember that episode because when we recorded that, it was 50 minutes to an hour's worth of content. I listened to it and I was like, this is terrible. I don't know if it was my energy or his or just we weren't aligning. This, the episode wasn't very good. And when you're a podcaster and you record an episode and you know it's not great, you have sort of a fork in the road. Do you publish it anyway because you've already spent that time to interview or do you do it again or, or do you just scrap it? Thankfully, Clay being a good friend of mine, I reached out to him and I was just honest with him. And I was just like, Clay, this episode, I listened to it. It's not very good. And number one, nobody's at fault here. It just is the way it is. But what are we going to do about it? And he was like, let's record it again. I'm going to make it the best podcast episode 
you've ever heard. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to hear. And I promise I'm going to bring my A game too. So we re-recorded that episode and it became an hour and a half episode. And anybody who's ever heard of laddering up or the laddering up episode on Smart Passive Income, that's the episode. That became the most downloaded episode within the shortest period of time. It hit 100,000 downloads in less than a week because it spreads so, so quickly. And in, and that, I have people email me all the time and say, hey, Pat, that episode with Clay, I don't remember the episode number, it's 263, but most people don't remember the numbers. They're like, this, that changed my life. And that episode helps you get from four figures to five figures to six figures to seven figures kind of situation, right? 7,000 to 70,000 to, to 7 million potentially. Another episode, episode 96, that was one where I interviewed an artist, somebody who helps artists make money online, Corey Huff. But what was interesting about that episode was that I thought it was going to bomb because it was so specific to artists, like literally painters, sculptors, those kinds of people who work with their hands and their craft. How do those pe people make more money online? I knew that most of my audience were not those people. But I had gotten some inspiration from Derek Halpern who said, hey, when you create a niched episode of anything or a niche blog post, a niche video. Sure, you're leaving a load of people out, but it's going to better serve the people who you are targeting and they're going to spread it for you. And I was like, really? So I said, okay, I'm going to try this, but I'm not feeling it. So I found Corey. We did this interview together. I published episode 96. And this was back when you could share something on Facebook pages. It would spread if it was good. Now pages are just nothing, but it was the most shared episode ever. It blew my mind. It had so many more downloads, like five times more than I thought was going to happen. And it was because the few people in my audience who were artists just were stoked about it, right? So they went to their communities of artists and were like, yo, you got to listen to this episode with Pat. I listened to him and he usually doesn't talk about artists, but in this one he does. You got to listen to it. Also, people in my audience who weren't artists, but new artists were like, yo, you got to listen to this one with Pat. He made this just for you. And then within forums and Facebook groups and stuff, pages, people were just sharing it like mad. And I'm, I think I remember having like 1.2K shares on that particular single Facebook post where I shared this, which was really cool. Episode 99 with Cliff and Jessica LaRue. This was the first Amazon FBA episode that kind of blew my mind because they were talking about how they go to places like Target and Walmart. They go to the clearance aisles. They have a little app that they could scan the barcodes on and go, okay, okay, this is being sold here for $10 each and there's like 50 of them, but they're being sold for $25 on Amazon. Okay, let's buy all 50 and then sell them on Amazon under our account. So this is a retail arbitrage and man, I still get people today who message me and say, hey, I've gone full time with Amazon FBA thanks to episode 99 with Cliff and Jessica. And I met them uh, through your event and they're great friends of ours now too. And it's just like so weird, man. I, like, I, I would hear people, then I'd meet people and they're like, what is happening? Like the world became so small through podcasting and internet marketing. It really did, man. For real. I mean, there's there so many episodes from the 15 minute episode I had with Gary Vaynerchuk because he literally was like, okay, go. And I said, okay, I have you for, for an hour. And they were, he's like, no, you have me for 15 minutes. And I said, okay. <laughs> That's the most Gary V thing ever. <laughs> yeah, right. that was a very short interview. Who else? Jeez, there's so many from Donald Miller, somebody who I really admire now from StoryBrand to, man, I could I could go on for days about all these episodes. There's too many to mention, man. But those are some of the standout ones right now. Yeah, man. I, I know it's, an, I know, man, everybody's got their favorite SPI episode. That one thing, that one story, that one place where they like, 
daggone, man, I think I can do this. Yeah, if you're listening to this, at me, at Pat Flynn, and what's your Twitter? At Flipped LS, at F-L-I-P-P-E-D-L-S. Okay, at us on Twitter, or at Reply Us both on Twitter, and tell us which episode of the SPA podcast was your favorite. I'd love to I'd love to know. Oh, man, you just gave me a midnight rabbit hole I'm never going to get out of when that thing starts taking off, dude. <laughs> All right, man, well, listen, man, we can talk about let's Let's start moving toward wrapping this up a little bit. I guess a lot of people are like, man, Pat has been doing this for so long and it just gets better and better and better. Like what's next for SPI? Like what's the next 500 episodes look like? What's the mission right now, man? Because you've got so much reach and so much impact. That's a lot of responsibility, but also Pat's got his goals. He's got his dreams. He's got his life too. So like what's next? I mean, there's a lot of things coming, but I also got to give a big shout out because, you know, yes, it's episode 500 of my show, the one that I started, but it's not just me anymore. It is also my team from Matt and SJ and honestly, way too many to mention. But from the support of the team, we're able to do it here. Jess, uh, especially, of course, especially helping coordinate all the interviews and whatnot. I mean, it's a team effort at this point, for sure. They've enabled me to spend more time doing the things that I love to do, which is actually doing the interview part versus the editing part and the publishing part to actually make connections and go out there and create more rapport with people. But for the future, you're going to see more podcasts, not necessarily, well, yes, definitely more podcast episodes of SPI, but you're going to see more shows, actually, more shows that not only I will be a part of, but some of my team members and even other people in the SPI community are going to be a part of. So I'll leave that at that. But that's really exciting because we're going to start to involve more people and more community members, more audience members into creating content, sharing all the information that we have to help and serve each other. SPI Pro still continues to be a just absolute blast. SPI Pro is our private membership group. Uh, you can check it out at smartpassiveincome.com slash pro. But we have hundreds of members there, many who sign in every day to communicate, to share, to ask, to serve. And we have events that happen all the time. I'm likely going to see very shortly here some of our first, because as things open back up again, you know, we, we actually brought that forward from 2022 to 2020 because people were missing community during the pandemic. So we brought it forward and it's become absolutely a fantastic community. And just we've specifically hired people to focus on that community, which has just been incredible. Jillian, especially leading the charge there. We're going to see a lot more opportunity to make that even better, including in-person events, like not just like FlynnCon type things or maybe an SPI conference of some kind, but also small little gatherings and meetups in different communities. This reminds me of, you know, Scott Dinsmore from Live Your Legend, Rest in Peace. He, he lost his life climbing, I think, Mount Kilimanjaro. He still lives on through the community that he had built prior to going to that trip. His community, the Live Your Legend community, still meets in person with each other all around the world. These little pockets of communities within his community are keeping his message alive. And that to me, speaks to legacy and bigger purpose. And those are things that are on top of my mind now, especially as the kids are getting older, but also as the community grows bigger and the impact can can even be greater. You know, I'm thinking beyond just helping people with online business, but helping with education. People have heard me talk about that many times. And I do have, especially as the kids are getting older, I'm getting a lot more time now and the team is growing to support a lot more time and effort and focus into educating kids on entrepreneurship, for example, and using a lot of my time for that. I do have this idea. You're the first to hear about this. In fact, this is a bucketless project for me, but I think it can be done if I execute it correctly pretty shortly here. But a book 
coffee table style book that is tentative title, 101 Ways for You and Your Kid to Make More Money This Summer or something like that. Literally every page turn is a different kid making money with some cool little side business in his neighborhood. It's like a lemonade stand, but but different. For example, a friend of mine, actually my trainer, Jeff McMahon, his son and he go out and they rent a pressure washer and they go and they do these blast washes of people's driveways for hundreds of dollars. It only costs like a little bit of money to rent these things. And now this kid has money to like buy computers and stuff. There's so many more of those opportunities available to us today. And I want to be a person who puts them all together in a nice book, really featuring the kid and the hard work that they're doing to hopefully inspire others to do the same. I think that could be a really fun way to start to inject a lot of education on entrepreneurship into the world, perhaps not through schools, but through publishing. And it could be a an Oprah select book, right? Kind of thing. I think I think it could do really well. I think that could do very well, dude. I would buy that book tomorrow because we're at that age, 10 and 12, where it's like, these kids can do something. And I didn't learn these lessons until I was 26, 27 after I got out of school. What if they learn it at 12 and 10, man? It just changes the world, dude. You know? Well, listen, man, can't stop this interview without talking about a gift I gave to you because I think it's really, really important I gave you a rock. Everybody's like, you gave Pat Flynn a rock? Yeah, on stage in front of everybody. It was like this beautiful box. I open it up and I look inside and pick it up and it's a rock. <laughs> and I told, and I, told you, and I, I told Jess that I was going to do this and you didn't know about it when I gave it to you. And she goes, oh my God, Shane, you're going to make him cry. She said, <laughs> she said, please don't make Pat cry on his stage at his first big event like this that he's hosting. I'm not, nah. I'm making Pat cry. So like, this rock uh, is, is very, very significant to us. Um, it's a huge thing in our own community and personally. And it comes from a story from Mother Teresa. My reporter was interviewing Mother Teresa. And he said, do you really, they're just all sarcastic and cynical. He said, do you really think you can change the world? And Mother Teresa looked at him and laughed. And she reached down and grabbed a rock off the ground. And she said, no, I, I do not think that I can change the world, but I can cast my stone out upon the waters and cause many ripples, man. And I told you uh, back then that, you know, when you decided Dude, you're going to make me cry now, bro, <laughs> Dude, I'm, I, I know, man, it makes me cry every time I think about it, man. because like I think about you moving forward after the most horrible thing that had happened to you up at that point in your life. And then you served an audience and then you realized that you could serve other people and you picked up your stone and you cast it out upon the waters and you launched the SBI podcast that goes out on the Apple. And just this old guy from Kentucky, man, is getting ready to mow his lawn one day and he picks it up his uh, earbuds and puts them in and that ripple hits me. And then my family's future gets changed forever. And then I just keep listening to your podcast and I keep hearing people about, about you changing their lives and all these crazy things happen. And then I go see you in San Diego and you had every reason, every reason when we asked you, do you think we should do something like what you're doing? Like, I think we could help couples. I think we could help families. Maybe, maybe we should launch a podcast too. And you just immediately picked up your stone again and said, yes, yes, you guys started. You're a different voice, a different person. And we're all working together to change as many lives as possible. And then we picked up our stone and we've seen our ripple hit so many people. And I just know, man, I'm pretty sure I can speak for the entire SBI community and all of Team Flynn to say, man, like, dude, you got to keep picking up your stone. You got to keep throwing that rock for 500 more episodes because there's so many people out there shaking their heads right now going, man, SBI changed my life. 
And Pat Flynn casting his stone really caused a ripple that changed my life, my family's future, helped me leave an inheritance to my children's children. And man, there's no telling how far the ripple from the next 500 episodes are going to go. So on behalf of the entire SBI community, entire Team Flynn, man, thank you, brother. I love you so much. I appreciate you so much. And uh, man, I cannot wait to, uh, to see what you do next. I love you too, man. I love you. I love Jocelyn, your family, everybody listening to this, you and your families. Thank you so much for the support. This has been an incredible journey. And, I, and trust me, we've got a lot more rocks to pick up and throw. We're going to cause more ripples during the next 500 episodes. We got this. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Right here in Greater Atlanta. Here's a little tale about hard-to-recycle plastics. Their destinies were changed. Their new lives are fantastic. What once was trash can live on as new things with a program that complements your regular recycling. plastics can be so much more. Give the trash a second chance it was hoping Greater Atlanta's hard-to-recycle plastics can be so much more. Participate in the Hefty Energy Bag Program, happening in your neighborhood today. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Living the Life Podcast. I am your host, Juanaka Tessie. For those of you who missed me last week, it was done on purpose. I took the week to go through some networking events about leadership, which I found super exciting. And I decided it was best to not have a podcast for that week because when I do have a podcast, I like to give my undivided attention to my guests and also to just keep making the podcast get better. Um, so welcome to the podcast. It is a productivity podcast where I cover a whole list of things and I bring guests on who I think are just super fantastic, especially the one today, um, Patty, you're going to hear some of her insights. And before we do all that, I want to thank Marcus for continuing to provide the show notes. He makes this podcast show not as boring because the music is so great to listen to. Am I right? <laughs> So without further ado, I am going to introduce my guest, Patty, to the show, and I am excited to have her on board. Thank you so much, Patty, for joining us. I wanted to first, again, thank you. I know this is taking time out of your day, but I want to invite you to this podcast because I found what you were talking about to be super interesting, and I wanted you to introduce yourself to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm very excited to be sharing some time with you um, today. And my name is Patty Rogers. My company is B2B Digital Assistance. And in a way, we talk a lot about productivity every single day in 
automation. That's really the core and the crux of what I do is working with female business owners. Usually they're in the online space and we talk about how they can grow and scale and how they can do that without the burnout, without the overwhelm, without what I call entrepreneurial ADD. <laughs> nice. So when you describe that, I'm so glad you described it because when I read all the things you did, I'm like, ooh, how can I summarize that? That's why I'm glad I asked you to do that. But when you started this, was this out of a need from something you experienced or you knew someone who this could benefit and you decided, well, let me keep going with this? Well, I think, I'm guessing I'm not unlike a lot of other entrepreneurs when I say that my path has not been a direct line from A to B or Z or however you want to refer to it. It's been kind of a curvy line with a lot of bumps and a lot of pitfalls and a lot of pivots. And I think that's very common, first of all, to address so that everybody should know that that is very common. It's normal. It's okay. Um, and I think it kind of should be like that. Like it's rare that someone goes into deciding to be an entrepreneur and they know exactly what they're going to do and they are immediately successful. Mm -hmm. The overnight success stories that a lot of us hear are, you know, I, I kind of relay it a little bit to, to anything in life if we think about it, right? Generally speaking, you know, we can talk about weight loss, we can talk about running an online business, we can talk about education, everything that we do when we strive for that we want to achieve, it takes effort, right? And it's not always the easiest path. We have to sometimes fall and figure out how to recover. So my path, personally, um, I started out as a virtual assistant. That was my very first business. Um, and I did that for a while, and then I realized that there was a lot of virtual assistants coming on the market, so we're talking 12 years ago. Okay. And I knew that what I did was different, and so what I did really, really well was I worked in an automation platform. I knew the technology, so I knew the back-end kind of techie parts of it, and I was really good about breaking that down in a way that business owners could understand it without overwhelming them and sounding really techie. And what that comes down to is marketing, mm -hmm. right? Like the basis of all businesses is marketing, sales, and fulfillment. That's what it comes down to. And so that's kind of my, that's where my path was in terms of the automation piece of my business. Where this entrepreneurial ADD part came in was over the years talking with all the business owners that I talked to, including my own story, right? Like my story and the people that I serve I know where they are because I was there. Right. And so that's very easy to understand. When I say entrepreneurial ADP, what I'm referring to is when you're usually online business owners, we're in an office, you know, at home maybe, or in a place that we rent, we're by ourselves, like I am here today. And you kind of get into this scatterbrain space, right? Because we're doing all the things. We're not just doing the fulfillment, the fulfillment. We're creating the programs. We're trying to figure out the pricing. We're trying to navigate this running a business in this online world way before COVID even happened. COVID just threw an extra layer of kind of complexity, if you will. And we're doing the marketing. We're trying to do the sales. We're doing all the things in the business. We're wearing every single hat. 
brain of shiny object syndrome, and that's really what I call entrepreneurial ADD. You know, it's funny because unless you have done an aspect of being an entrepreneur, which there's a joke that entrepreneurs are people who didn't want to work 40 hours, so they signed up to work 80 hours. So um, that is the ever-running joke that I even heard that in college. And it's true because you end up getting this idea, right? And sometimes it's an idea only you know that's going to work because you know you're going to put that much effort. And then you go in and you're like, okay, I have so many hours in the day. I'll totally get this done. Then, of course, what happens is you go home with it and it becomes your baby. And then 10 hours a day becomes the 15 and so on and so forth. So with all saying all that, what, when did you realize, you know what, I know that other people are going through this because I also went through it. Now let me itemize it to where I could be useful to other entrepreneurs and then really focus on what their issue is that might cause them to not be as successful. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, so I would say for me, I was going through the thick of it, probably, honestly, if I'm being really honest, for a couple of years, like 2017, maybe the end of 17 through 2019. Okay. And the beginning of 2019 is when I really started to completely restructure my business because most service-based entrepreneurs, they will work with people on some sort of a one-on-one -on -one relationship, whether that's a retainer or hourly, doesn't really matter how they structure themselves, but there's only so many hours that they can work. And then we get into a situation where we're trading dollars for hours. Mm. That's a really slippery slope because you only have so many hours. So you can either give your choices, right? You can raise your prices, you can hire additional staff, which brings in a whole nother added layer of complexity or you can change the structure of your business and go into more of like a one-to-many type of model right where you're putting people into group programs workshops things like that you're, it's one of you one business owner and many consumers and that's fine and dandy the problem that entrepreneurs run into when they make that transition is the tech that's involved and all of the processes that go in that. Like, we all know as on, online entrepreneurs, we know things, we know there's funnels, we know that there are opt-ins on websites, we know that there's membership sites, we know all of this thing, these things. But typically, if you're not from that space, you can go down that rabbit hole very, very quickly. And just like you mentioned, you have all these things that you want to accomplish in one day, let's say in eight or 10 hours, and then you go down this rabbit hole of, okay, I'm going to create a landing page or I'm going to create a course and it takes all day. Mm -hmm. Because when we're in that finish, we're kind of bootstrapping, right? We can either time and money, it always comes down to time and money. So we can either spend our time and figure it out or we can spend our money and hire someone to do it for us. So what I figured is I was in that same spot. I was working one-on-one -on -one with clients getting very burnt out and here's the other thing it's not just that you run out of hours there becomes a situation where the people that you're working with they start to view you as an employee mm. and usually as 
a business owner, you are not an employee. You don't want to be viewed as an employee because if you did, you would go and collect your paycheck and more importantly, collect your insurance. This is right? true, yes. So we don't, that, that's not what we signed up for. And so making mm-hmm. that transition is a big one and it's a scary one. And there are a lot of pitfalls that people can get stuck in. Yeah. Even such as trying to figure out how to price their programs, right? How to sell them. That's a big piece. Like, how do you sell? I mean, that was something that I struggled with. I didn't view myself as a salesperson. And let's be very honest. If you have a business and you are a business owner, you are a salesperson. This is true. Like it or not. You can reframe it. You can reframe it in your mind. You can call it serving. You can call it whatever you want. But if you are not out there selling every single day, offering your services, the business isn't going to go anywhere. And that's where I found myself. So I had to make that transition. And I was stuck in this entrepreneurial ADD of scatterbrain. I was trying different things all the time because there's a guru on every corner telling you that their way is the only way. Yeah. As as we, I think we all know, I hope we all know, there are a gazillion ways to scale and run your business. You don't have to do it the way that I do it. It's whether or not that resonates with you. That's what I did. I'm a mom. I have three kids. Like, work-life balance is really important to me. Being super productive is really, really important to me. Making sure that I have that balance in my life. So, the way it shows up for people, usually, like I said, trying different strategies. They're kind of scatterbrained. They're searching. Um, They are consuming. This is probably the biggest one. Social media is great, but it's also, it's like a, it's like a double-edged sword, right? It's a great tool, but it can also be very dangerous. So when you're in that consuming place of seeing what other people are doing, you know, someone referred to it on one of my posts as like a freebie graveyard. (laughs) You go and you're opting in for all the things and you're like, yes, I need this checklist and yes, I need this social media. I need this branding guide. And I need a new logo, right? And you're doing all of these things. At the end of the day, none of those things are really going to change how the business is run. Um, but again, it always comes down to marketing and sales. So, and you had mentioned, I think that you have a lot of people that are in the fitness industry. Yes. Um, if we relay this to fitness, right? Um, it's very simple. It's Calories in, calories out, right? This is true. This what is true. Body, right? And how much are we exercising? So it's it's the simple techniques that that work in everything, right? But we as business owners, we as entrepreneurs, we're kind of always looking for that easy button, right? What's the way that's going to get me to six figures? What's going to get me to ten k months tomorrow? Yeah. And sometimes there is an easy way, but if we're constantly jumping around trying different things, we're never going to get there. This is true. Um, it's it's interesting to me. You talked about social media, especially what it is now today. And I remember when I started my small business. I was even a kid, so I didn't I didn't know the like kids today and social media. They know what they're doing, right? 
But I remember people looked at me so strange and weird because it's like, well, why are you following that? And in my head, I'm like, well, that's probably why I'm still around and I don't have a lot of funding to run a business. So I have to go through outlets. Like I couldn't pay for heavy marketing. I couldn't pay for, so social media, I had to be very creative. How do you have that conversation with someone who's like, I see everything and it's not, I don't know which one is mine, which one fits, and I don't know what people are gonna say. How do you have that conversation and say, what are you most interested in? Running this business well or running it the way you think people want you to run it? As the business owner? Hmm. Yes. Um, I think that you bring up a really good point because oftentimes business owners come in and it's like, I can serve everybody. Hmm. And I am going to talk about niching, but niching in a way that I don't think, for example, like when I talk about niching for your industry, I don't think you have to say, okay, I'm only going to work with people who are in the, we just talked about fitness, in the fitness sector, right? right? I don't think it has to be that specific. Like for me, for example, I work with female entrepreneurs that are online business owners. So that could be a fitness professional, that could be a finance person. I have a client who is, um, they do painting consultations. Like really the industry, it doesn't have, you don't have to niche it that way. Um, but I do think that there is a certain piece that like you can be the niche. And a lot of times, a lot of business owners, like I don't call myself a coach, but I'm kind of coachy, I guess. Like that's not really what I do. But where I come from is, is I'm almost the niche of who I serve. Because I'm very familiar with the problems that my ideal client suffers because that's where I was. It's a previous version of myself. So I think that's the key is you have to know who your person is. And I'm not saying like my person is between the age of 30 and 45 and they live here and they have kids or they're married or they're single or they're divorced. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you need to know what keeps them up at night. What are their struggles and their pain points? Because if you can speak to that, then you've got, you know they are. It's very, it's very appealing. It's, I need to call it like, I don't don't know if you want to call it like, I haven't even heard of this term, like appeal marketing, but no appeal to, to, um, like their desired state, mm-hmm. right? Like you know where they are right now and you know where they want to get to because that's where you wanted to get to. Yeah. And you leave no stone unturned to do it. So if you can show someone the fast path to get there, but, but not an ideologic, like a proven fast path to get to where they want to go all day long. Mm-hmm. Full on that. Is it possible to have like an example where you can walk me through what that client relationship is with you, where you sit down with someone and you're like, hey, this is what I see, this, these are the potentials, and would you go on this journey with me? What does that usually entail for someone like you and what you do? Really good question. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
usually the people that I work with, they're pretty clear before we even get on the phone. Okay. Again, because I've spoken to their pain points, like I know where they are. So at the time when we get on the phone, we talk, of course, about their goals, right? Where do you want to go? Where are you in your business? What are the things? And I usually ask that question. What are the things that are keeping you up at night? Because everybody has it and they're different. Like even when you have gotten to a point where you're making six figures or whatever, whatever your thing is, right? Like we all go on these paths, like get to six figures and then it's okay. But then what's the next thing? Then maybe it's multiple six figures or it's God, I want to just run my business and have like five, you know, five figure months. Mm. I want to make a consistent $5,000 every single month and that's okay. So we need to figure out first where you are and have a very honest look at where you are. And then we need to figure out how to get where you want to go. What is the desired state? And we back it out. We backtrack it. Um, I have a process, a method that I use and I kind of reframed ADD, right? So ADD is attention deficit disorder. That's what we're talking about today. Entrepreneurial ADD. So I took that ADD and I reframed it to actions determine direction. Nice. Thank you. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of times when we're stuck, we have this chaotic, you know, chaos kind of mindset. And that that's confusing to people. It's confusing when we go on podcast interviews, it's confusing when we do Facebook lives, it's confusing when we write content. So I wanted to make sure, and, and when we're in that space of being confused, usually what happens is imposter syndrome sneaks in and inactivity. So we get small, we stop showing up, and this is a real problem because we all have such unique gifts but we're letting other people get in our minds where we're comparing ourselves to other entrepreneurs. And the biggest and fastest way to get out of that is action. And so our actions will determine where we go. Is our business going to flourish or is it going to shrink and die? And actions are going to tell us what happened, which is why I reframed it that way. And we have a path and we go through everything from Okay, how do you attract your people? Now, how do you get their attention? How do you capture them into your business? And then how do you kind of like love up on them, right? Or nurture them? Of course, we have to talk about sales. We have to convert them to cash, right? Because otherwise, we're just running in a hobby. We're not running a business. And then past that, once, we, once they are a client, then it turns into how do we serve them to the absolute best of our ability? And moreover, how do we get them to give us glowing reviews, great referrals to their friends and family and other business owners, and then how do we turn them into repeat clients? That is the real, like, creme de creme. If you have a client that will give you a great review, send referrals your way, and purchase from you when you introduce new programs, that's all we can ask for. That's everything. And so my process takes entrepreneurs through that whole thing. Oh, I like that. I like the whole flow because it you have to have them be very honest. And I feel like 
So just hearing what you said in terms of that process, unless you have something to add specific to that, what I always enjoy about what people like you do is you allow the person to tell you what is their comfort level in a way they want to sell themselves or their product. Whereas if you go to a traditional business mindset, it's about, oh, well, this is a customer and this is what you need to do. You and I know the world has changed so much. Um, and side note, to be more attractive, attractive to my clients when I was in the salon, the fitness was actually what I used to market. I was never into like having people be my fitness clients, but I found that it went in line with healthy hair and healthy lifestyle. So it helped me grow for eight years in my salon by just talking about the fitness side of what I do and meal prepping. So I just wanted to throw that out there because people were so confused as to what I was doing. But at the end, you know your bills, you know your goals. Um, but me saying that I didn't have the courage to speak lack of fear into like people who would doubt what I was doing so I was always afraid and ashamed that oh well maybe they don't get me so I, I do have to shrink down when you do have a client and they get to that point where they're just like oh I don't know people are not getting it how do you kind of like ease their mind to tell them like this is this is you this works for you it I don't have an exact thing I will say that usually when when we're on a phone call as long as there is a safe place okay right like you and I are we're talking we're chatting if if I'm showing up as the authentic business owner that I am there there's a reason my business shifted and I work only with female entrepreneurs I was called to do that I get along great with men I've had some wonderful male clients there's something that happens when you get the right group of female business owners, like you can see here at this yes. poster. There's, there's 20 women, but when you get the right mix together and there isn't competition and everybody is there to lift each other up, mm -hmm. it's incredible. And that can be a big group of people. It can be two people. So I think it just kind of happens naturally. And usually it depends on the, on the personality. Okay. But I think I think at the end of the day it's it's natural. I can't say there's one particular thing that I do. Yeah, to that makes sense. <laughs> have some tricks up sleeve to help them do things and practice and get comfortable, but sometimes we just need the permission from someone who's been there before us. Oh got it. That makes sense. Um with you know, like you manage a lot in in terms of like organizing people's ideas and their creativity and you also have your own life and your own family I want to see if you can speak into how do you manage to balance all that or does it become part of who you are you know you kind of live your life around it and it doesn't overwhelm you or do you have a set schedule where you're like this is the time and then this is not the time mm -hmm. yeah great question um, I have always worked at home Nice. So that's really important to me. Um, I should say since I run my own business. And I've had the opportunity to go and rent an office space. But for me, there's something about, you know, being here in the morning when my kids go to school and generally speaking, being here when they get home. Okay. So 
I do, I use a lot of, the, the crux of my business, like I said, is automation. So that is the lifesaver. And honestly, for businesses, businesses in general, but moreover, online businesses, for them to grow and scale, you have to have some sort of automation in place so that when you are fulfilling and you're running your business or serving your clients, you have other things that are working in the background back here Got it. without you getting in the way. That's the key is we get in our own way. A lot of times we are the cog in the wheel in our own business and your business should support you, not the other way around. Nice. But you have to set that up with the structure, right? With some productivity. So for me, yes, I do. I, I build, I build my programs. I build my day. Like I, I did it backwards, and it wasn't always like this. Um, for a long time, I just was kind of running behind the wheel of my business. I was supporting the business, and back when I kind of restructured everything, I just thought about it. I was like, okay, what do I want my business to look like? And I planned out everything. I planned out. What time do I want to start my day? Like, do I want to have time to work out before I start my business day? Mm-hmm. Do I, how much vacation do I want per year? What time do I want to end my day? And that's really where I started. And I built my programs to fit into my life. Because that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur. We get to choose. That's correct. We get to choose what it looks like. And if we're not doing that, if we're not choosing and we're chasing behind business then we kind of have it backwards a little bit and that's it's very common that we get stuck in that place um so of course there's times where you know my business day has ended and then i need to do some things like last night kids came in my room i was writing an email and they wanted to chit chat and cuddle and watch a movie and i was like nope i gotta do this and i think that's good for them they need to see that too that sometimes you know work has to come before play I like that. Um, I want you to speak more a little bit about that whole idea of not being seen as the employee of your business. And it ties in with this thing, which I know I made the mistake where I was supporting the business. The business, now that I think of it and you said that statement, it didn't actually support me. I was able to manage, but if I had done it differently, um, I skipped out a lot of opportunities just due to fear, fear and uh, just thinking small. Because if you think small, then you're humble. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a misconception, actually. So how do, you, how do you spot that? And is there a way you, you kind of like I can identify it and say, let's regroup. You are supporting this business. I already see it. Yeah, um, I think sometimes it's it's not always this way, but I think at times, a lot of times, I don't know what percentage, I'd probably have to do a little research. Okay. I do believe that there is kind of a breaking point. Okay. And a business owner realizes like, wow, this is not what I signed up for. Okay. And, and it goes to that quote that you mentioned, right? Like entrepreneurs are like, oh, forget this 40 hour a week job. I'm gonna go start my own business and 
work 80 to 100 hours yeah. minimum and not be there for my family and be overwhelmed and stressed and have that roller coaster of money that's probably one of the biggest pieces right of having that inconsistent income because that is scary and it breeds insecurity so um i think the tipping point I, i think there is a tipping point usually it's some sort of a breakdown whatever that looks like whether that's i'm overwhelmed because i can't take on any more clients and my income is capped or you're being treated like an employee from people that are, you know, you've made a decision to work together. Like, and I don't do much one-on-one work anymore, but when I do, or when I did, I made it very clear to people that I was on the phone with that this is a two-way street because I need to make sure that you're a fit for me and you need to make sure that I'm a fit for you. Yeah. Like, I don't take every client that comes my way, nor do I think anybody should. That doesn't mean you have to be rude about it, but it's just like, we're not a fit, or I can't support you in the way that you need. Like, there are some business owners who are very clear that they need you available in the evenings and on weekends, and they're calling, and they're texting, and they're DMing, and for me, like, that's a line I don't cross. Got it. That's unacceptable. So, I think part of it is, is really being true to yourself. And kind of going back to what I said about really taking the time and doing some deep thought, meditation, research, soul searching of like, what do you want? At the end of the day, it comes to what do you want your life to look like? Yeah. Because we are planning out our lives. So if you want to sleep in, if you're not an early bird, then shoot, start your business day at 10. There's nothing wrong with that. it kind of comes back to permission. Like, I remember years ago, I wanted to take Fridays off. And it was important to me. It was something that I talked about with our kids because I've always included my kids into my business. Okay. Um, and one of my coaches was like, okay, done. You have Fridays off starting this week. But sometimes we need someone to give us that permission. And there might be things that I need to do on a Friday, but generally speaking, I don't come into my office on Friday. Okay. I like that. I, it also speaks to your, I feel like you've trained yourself to set those boundaries. Whereas sometimes when we start as small businesses or small entrepreneurs, we feel like people own us and the business owns us. So we don't, set the proper boundaries or we really don't know how to get around it so i'm glad you shared those points but now that you you've hinted at it how do you involve your kids to be part of what you're doing and how are they how do you see them benefiting from this oh wow that's a big question (laughs) (laughs) so i'll tell a quick story if we have some time you have time (laughs) my oldest daughter is and a half she's in seventh grade and when she was in I think it was third grade we went to like back to the school night at the school so third grade it was I don't know eight ish something like that seven or eight um and she had a little packet of papers all the kids did on the wall so I was thumbing through things and looking at it and the 
general gist of the story, this isn't exactly it, but it was something like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my young daughter at this time, who had already seen me working at home for seven or eight years, wrote something to the effect of, I want to have a business with an office in my home so that I can stay home and be with my kids. Oh. And I was like, wow. kids um, you can force them to do something and they will do it begrudgingly yes. when you show them the benefits they're gonna take on that and explain it to you in the way like your daughter did because then it's something that she views as beneficial for her so I like that you brought that out but thank you for sharing that part of you it's personal I'm always really nervous to skate around people's families and I do appreciate that but before we started this conversation you hinted at a book that you have um, if you can yeah. tell us more about that and just you know just the future of what you do absolutely thank you so much um, so I was invited earlier this year it's so interesting to me just the path of being an entrepreneur and it was at this time that I was invited into a book anthology. So it was 20 other female entrepreneurs okay. were writing a chapter in a book. And it's always the times in your life when things, when you are at max capacity, that opportunities show up. And how you respond to those opportunities are really, really important because it's very easy to get in a space of overwhelm of, oh my gosh, I can't take on one more thing. I am 
capacity. But when you do that, you almost like shut the door to more opportunities. I got it. I was at capacity. My family was moving across the country. And within the span of like 45 days, all these amazing opportunities were getting presented to me. And I just said, yes, I said, yes, I said, yes, I said, yes. I was like, I don't know how the heck I'm going to do it, but I'll figure it out. And I did. And the book was one of those opportunities that came up. So it is called the female entrepreneur's playbook. This is a copy of the, the cover. Um, so you can find it right now for pre-order on both iBooks and Amazon. It's 99 cents for the pre-order and 100% of the proceeds go to charity, nice. which is amazing. The actual book launch is gonna be in October, but it's basically strategies from 20 different entrepreneurs, 20 different industries on how we built a business that we love and we get paid for it. Nice. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So there's two charities that we're supporting um, right now. One is the Thirst Project, which is um, clean water in developing countries. And the other one is, I don't know the name of the charity, I'm so sorry. Um, but basically, for every $1,000 that goes to this charity, they pay off $10,000 of medical debt for struggling families and individuals in the United States. It's pretty incredible. That is a huge issue. I I think probably across the world, but specifically in this country. And we all decided collectively that for us, the point of the book, it's not the book sales, like while that's important, it's our opportunity to give back. And so 100% of the proceeds are all going to charity. And we are utilizing the book, of course, as exposure for us and an opportunity. Um, but yeah, female entrepreneurs playbook. You can go and pre-order right now. There are a whole slew of bonuses, probably about 20, because each entrepreneur offered a bonus um, that are available when you pre-order. And again, all the proceeds go to charity. And it's just, it's really, it's a light read. It's very easy. And it's kind of a question answer for all these different entrepreneurs. I like it. I always ask my guests as a parting for the conversation we have, what is one phrase, one scripture, one adage that you always have in your mind that when you wake up, you're like, okay, that's my mantra and I'm ready to go. If you can share those parting words with our audience. I will. This is one that it sounds, I have to give a little, a little caveat because it sounds, um, it might sound greedy. I hope it doesn't sound greedy, but mindset for entrepreneurs is so incredibly important and especially a healthy money mindset. It's so, so important for business owners. Like a lot of times, this this is what happens with lottery or athletes when they hit a certain income or they win the lottery and then it's gone because the money mindset is not there of I am worthy, I deserve this. So a screensaver on my phone that I have all the time is I love money and money loves me. Nice. I like it. It's an attraction. I I love money and money loves me back. I like it. It's about changing the behavior of what money does 
Um, and I also like how you tie some of the things you're doing to charity. Um, I always tell people sometimes it's the money makers that are the reasons those charities get funded. So we just need to reward and reassess how we view it and what we do with it. So, um, Patty, I want to thank you so much for stopping by on the podcast. I'm going to list how people can reach you on the show notes, and I would love to catch up with you very soon on this podcast and um, see how things are going for you. It was a pleasure. Well, you heard it from Patty. It was such a delight to have her on the podcast. Even as I was listening to her during the podcast, I was learning so many things about how I could have done my business a little bit better many years ago. And this is what I love about this podcast. What I cannot share with you because of lack of knowledge or lack of experience, someone in my guests lineup is surely to give you that advice and wisdom so that you can continue kicking butt in this life, continue to be successful consistently, and making small steps to reach those big attainable goals or those goals that people think it's minute, but you find it very impactful for your life. I especially loved how she was able to tie what she was doing to two charities which, as you all know, whenever you come to this podcast, I speak on how much giving back really means to me and how much it impacts those that are not able to get the same resources as you and I are able to. So find it in your heart to give however you can, even if it's once a year, or write a check. Like if you got money, people in the charity organizations will benefit from it. So Um, Thank you again for tuning in, download, subscribe, like, favorite it, share it with your friends and family. As always, see you on the podcast and stay safe, especially as COVID continues to wear its ugly head. Let's all think of this as a community effort so that we can get back to what we love doing and that's being in community. I will see you next week. Right here in Greater Atlanta. Here's a little tale about hard to recycle plastics. Their destinies were changed. Their new lives are fantastic. What once was trash can live on as new things with a program that complements your regular recycling. Plastics can be so much more. Give this trash a second chance. It was hoping Greater Atlanta's hard-to-recycle plastics can be so much more. Participate in the Hefty Energy Bag Program, happening in your neighborhood today. I'd like to taste a real Italian coffee, please. What is the real Italian coffee? L'espresso. In a capsule? Blended by the masters. Yes, Lavazza Espresso Italiano. A rich, full-bodied taste made from the finest Arabicas by the masters of espresso. Lavazza. episode please leave us a review on itunes winning in asia is never simple or easy it takes determination and agility find out how some companies get tripped up while others make incredible profits this is winning in asia 
here we go. Welcome back to the Winning in Asia podcast. I'm Michael Dunn, your host, and my very special guest today is Dr. Linda Lim, born in Singapore, educated at Cambridge, and professor at the University of Michigan. Now, Linda has been an extraordinary friend and mentor to me ever since we met in Ann Arbor some 33 years ago. At that time, I was already deep into China, taking the language, history courses with giants of the day, people like Michael Oxenberg and Ken Lieberthal. But Linda had some advice for me. Hey, Mike, you should really look beyond China. There's so much more to Asia than the Middle Kingdom. Do not put all of your eggs into one basket, she said. She recommended I start classes in Thai. And boy, did Linda's advice ever prove to be so immensely prescient and valuable. A few weeks after graduating, I traveled to Thailand and I shortly started my first company, Automotive Resources Asia. Now, today's topic of conversation touches on Thailand, but it really centers on China. Specifically, Linda and I look at the battle for global supremacy between China and the United States. Where would she place her bets? Is she more optimistic about China or the U.S.? How should Western companies adjust to new realities? And what are the opportunities in Asia beyond China? Hint, think Southeast Asia. All right, here we go. Linda Lim, Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan, with me on the Winning in Asia podcast. Hello, good morning, Linda. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us on the Winning in Asia podcast. You're welcome. Looking forward to it. This is a, a change of seats, if you will. You know, normally I'm used to being in the student seat and you're asking the questions. I'm going to get the opportunity to turn the thing around today. I'm really looking yes, forward yes. to it. Okay, so let's get into it. You imagine that you just inherited $10,000 mm -hmm. and you can put that money either on a stock that's a China Inc. stock or a USA Inc. stock, and you're investing for a 10-year period, which one would you invest in and why? Well, as you know, the MBA answer is I should invest in both, right, for portfolio diversification, but 10,000 isn't really enough to invest in both. <laughs> okay. So if I could only invest in one, it's not really a fair question because it's pretty obvious around the world today, is I would choose the US. Right. How come? You want to know why? Yes. Well, first of all, even if you move away from the current uh, headlines, which are all bullish for the U.S. and bearish for China stock markets because of what's been happening, the U.S. has a much deeper, much broader financial market. There are many different instruments I can invest in. It provides choice. It provides diversity depending on my risk and return preference. Basically, it has higher quality listings and a lot more capital sloshing around, right? So the, the value of the stock is more likely to rise. Secondly, um, I understand and trust the regulatory environment. It mm. provides for transparency, disclosure, accountability, all those good things. So I can properly evaluate the risks of particular securities that I can put my money into. So my, my investment will be more stable, more secure. I have more trust in the environment. In China, the regulatory environment is opaque and volatile. Hmm. And finally, um, you will know this from being in my classes, I live in the U.S., 
So investing in the US removes currency risk from the equation, right? My anticipated expenditure and my income will be in the same currency. Whereas if I invest in China, I will be exposing myself to currency risk movements of the renminbi against the dollar, which are also hard to predict. Okay, so those are very convincing reasons. I'm on board with you. And yet, in the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen Wall Street pour money into China like it's going out of style. Like, what are they seeing that maybe the rest of us aren't? Why are they still attracted to the China market in your view? Okay, firstly, you know, you invest according to your own needs. Don't forget I am retired. Mm. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm looking at my next 10 years, right? Yes. I mean, I, I can't take as many risks as if I was your age or your kid's age. So Wall Street has a longer time horizon. China should have higher GDP growth, higher revenue growth than the U.S. Since it is a much lower income Um, middle-income country, it's still developing. So it's not at the frontier yet, right? It's got a lot of room to run. But at the same time, its financial market is less developed and the political risk is greater. Mm -hmm. So if you were younger and more risk-taking at more than (laughs) (laughs) $10,000... You better bring 10x that, right? (laughs) At least. You might put it in... At least I think people should put a portion of their portfolio, and I'm Sure, mine is at least partially invested in China because mm-hmm. it is going to be, we don't know when, the largest economy. And it, to say that you wouldn't invest in China at all, although I do know people who take that position, it's like, oh, I wouldn't invest in the US, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. That those are the two big markets. Um, one, and they, they sort of... Um, balance each other quite well you know one is mature stable trustworthy etc good for retirees that's called the u.s mm-hmm. and then there's another one which is riskier but but poorer and so has it's an emerging market versus longer uh runway um to go yes so as you said at the outset diversify yeah Yes. Now, just one week ago, the Straits Times of Singapore published an important opinion piece by you that was entitled The Incredible, Unsinkable American Economy. And you wrote, for the world economy and for Singapore, decoupling from the U.S. economic engine is not an option. So are there countries in Asia, you know, Singapore, Thailand, Philippines, who are sensing a need to choose between the U.S. and China now? Oh, I would say... Everyone senses Mm. that because U.S. and China keep telling them. Mm. U.S. uh, Secretary of Defense uh, uh, Lloyd Austin was just in Singapore, Vietnam, and the Philippines, which uh, people say were the three most friendly to the U.S. countries in Southeast Asia. And he didn't in his speeches, you know, you know, he didn't say anything like bad about China. I mean, it's a diplomat uh, after all. But I think countries, certainly Singapore and Vietnam, uh, for different reasons, uh, feel very torn because of the rhetoric between the US and China. And each one says the other one is trying to dominate you, right? Mm. So you have to go with me. So I think that that whole decoupling rhetoric 
is actually coming right now, actually mostly from the US, but also from China. So, you know, if you're the small fish in between the two big whales, you know, you have to watch out. So you're prime minister tomorrow of Singapore. How do you handle that? Oh, be friends with both, of course. I mean, uh. <laughs> I would double down mm -hmm. on the relations with both. Why is that? Well, first of all, you don't want to be bullied by anyone, right? Mm -hmm. If you let a bully get away with things, you will only be more bullied. Mm -hmm. We know this. This is like a law of nature. So what you do, if somebody is bullying you, you make friends with somebody else who's maybe equally big and powerful and bullying uh, as a counter, right? The last thing you want to do is be dependent on one big and powerful country. So ironically, the stance that both US and China is taking is actually, I think, for those who have a choice, which is not everybody, is to push people actually into the other side as well. Mm. So from their perspective, you know, as a the average American would see China as bullying, and the US is just being American. <laughs> but from the perspective of Southeast Asia, right? So, but from the perspective of someone in Singapore or Vietnam, mm -hmm. they would maybe identify it as equal parts bullying. Yeah. Okay. So what's really interesting, you know, this is, this is actually really interesting is I don't know whether you saw that Pew Research had a, had a survey a couple of months ago showing that um, out of 17 industrial advanced countries, mm -hmm. um, China's reputation had been falling and the U.S. people become much more friendly towards the U.S. and less friendly, uh, less sanguine about China. And that includes, you know, Japan, Taiwan, Korea and Singapore. And Singapore was the only country of the 17 which went the other way. That is to say it was more favorable towards China than towards the U.S., and then it had been in the past. So something mm. happened, right? Mm. And what happened, I think, you know, we're trying to figure out why, is really, uh, I'm sorry to say, the previous administration. You know, all the rhetoric uh, that came out of the Trump administration was blown up all over Asia, right? Uh, in particularly the 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 whole thing about, you know, Kung flu and China flu, you know, mm -hmm. the whole COVID thing. And there's all this stuff about anti-Asian hate in the US. So people who are very exposed to this, which in the case of Singapore would be people who read both English and Chinese, right? Yes. So they're exposed to both sides. So you would get all these, um, you know, you would get your, your parents, you know, so my students and parents say, you better come home, it's dangerous over there, you know, you'll either get beaten up in the streets, or you will die of COVID, right? <laughs> if you just think about it, where most people get their information, it is uh, from that. So I think there's a, there was a sense relatively recently that the U.S. is anti-Asian, you know, mm. that is racist, all the Black Lives Matter stuff was out there. And um, I don't think the US was particularly bullying, didn't take any particular actions that were considered bullying. Uh, I might be mistaken. They didn't tell people what to do in very clear ways, other than darkly suggesting that you know, hinting that if you're close to China, you know, we could cut you off, you know, 
economically or financially. Mm-hmm. That was a hint, but I don't think there was any ever any sort of like direct. There could have been behind the scenes saying you have to sign this paper, you know, or or sign up on our side. And I think that um, it was kind of interesting when you said <laughs> your point about. Um, the Chinese were seen as bullying and Americans as being American. <laughs> uh-huh. That's really clever. I think part of the resentment to the extent it exists about Americans is they act like they own the world, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe they do, but they act big, right? They act like, uh, you know, we should have freedom to do everything that we want, uh, you know, including in your backyard and things like that. And sometimes that gets some people a little irritated. It's not that they necessarily disagree, but it's a very subtle thing, particularly people with tender egos, right? Mm -hmm. People who think that um, they come from a great civilization (laughs) Uh, and uh, they should not be patronized or talked down to. And I'm not meaning China here. Yes, <laughs> I'm meaning, uh, uh, you know, Singapore, other people of perhaps of Chinese or Confucian ancestry or whatever. So I think a lot of being American, acting like you're number one, right, that rubs some people the wrong way. The wrong way. Yes, in yeah. particular, Singapore, you can understand one of the wealthiest city states in the world, if not the wealthiest, right? Um, yeah. More, is it more billionaires per capita than any other country? Well, I mean, could be. I mean, we mm. have all these, you know, foreign American and British billionaires who mm. show up there and live in luxurious penthouses and so on, because we are very friendly to mm-hmm. uh, rich people from around the world. I mean, sorry, mega rich people. It can't just be rich. No, that's not <laughs> enough anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in Singapore. Yes. And then was- went to school in Cambridge. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Singapore. My family was, you know, originally from China, but we had been there for, in Singapore and Malaysia for four generations. So I'm actually a very old uh, Singaporean. Most Singaporeans are not even, you know, uh, one or two generations. You're one of the originals. Yes, we are, we are the old Singaporeans, <laughs> originals. And Singapore, as you recall, uh, is a British colony. Mm-hmm. So certainly when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, we were first a British colony and then uh, immediate post-colonial. So everything, the whole education system, all the things you aspire to were colonial, British. So of course you want to go to the best universities, which were Oxford and Cambridge. There was another factor in Singapore, which was that the prime minister at the time, our founding prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, and his wife, um, who she was a lawyer and she graduated from my school and she actually gave me my graduation diploma. You know, she was a guest of honor when I graduated from my high school. And they both went to Cambridge. Oh, is that right? Lee yes. Kuan Yew and his wife went to Cambridge. That's right. They, were both, had, they both went to Cambridge. Hmm. So it was, it was like the place, you know, like you had to go to. In addition, I was interested in economics. And I remember trying to decide whether to go to University of Cambridge or London School of Economics. I said, what do I know? The London School of Economics has economics in its name. (laughs) (laughs) And so I asked, I called someone who happened to be my uncle, who was an economist, and he said, yeah, Cambridge is really good. And so I found out that that was really the place where you had all, you know, 
John Maynard Keynes, Alfred Marshall, all the big names um, of the late 19th and, and uh, 20th century. So it was actually the Cambridge was kind of like the heart of economics. I should step back and say, why did I get interested in economics, which I only learned in, you know, like when I was 16, 18. And that was because Singapore was ejected from Malaysia in 1965. Mm. When I was 15, it would have been part of Malaysia for a couple of years and was a vulnerable, you know, small island. And Lee Kuan Yew said, pray God my successor is an economist. I didn't even know what <laughs> economics was. <laughs> Did he say that? Really? Yes, he said that, pray God my successor is an <laughs> economist. And uh, so I, you know, then I did some economics in school for my A-levels. I said, aha, uh -huh, you know, this must be terribly important. <laughs> and if you realize at that time, the whole area of Southeast Asia was post-colonial, was developing. So I was interested in economic development. And that's what led me to Cambridge. Okay, so tell us a little bit, because as you're speaking about Cambridge in the 60s, mm -hmm. 70s, I'm yeah. thinking about the movie Crazy Rich Asians and the opening scene where a family, I think from Singapore, arrives in London and actually is the new owner of a hotel there in downtown London, much yeah. to the surprise. So when you first arrive in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. Were there many Asian students? What was it like? Were you welcome? Yeah. Um, okay. It was very interesting because Britain being colonial, most people had heard of Singapore, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the Brits, they had just left Singapore. And so they, they knew where Singapore was. Was it unusual? Yes, it was very unusual. Mm. Uh, in my year in uh, Cambridge, there were two of us, two wow. Singaporeans. Mm. Um in all the, you know, however many colleges, one was um, a guy doing medicine and one was me. So every year there would be, I would say, two to three uh, Singaporeans. What a big difference. Nowadays, you know, it's just like a huge place for Singaporeans. A few years ago, there were like 200 Singaporeans at Oxford, you know, probably more. It, it's almost become, it's so common for Singaporeans to go to Cambridge for undergraduate now. It's almost become too common. You know, mm. it doesn't differentiate you. It says, I went to Cambridge. Oh, yeah, so what? You know, <laughs> I know 30 people who went to Cambridge. It has some cachet, but it's much more common now. So it's less cachet than when I went. So when I went, there were four of us that applied from my school to go, and I was the only one who got in, right? So um, now it's like, you know, everybody goes. So it's not a big deal. And you weren't done, you know, after Cambridge, you went to Yale and then then to Michigan for your PhD. That's where we met. Yes. And you know what I was thinking before our call today was the very first day of class, international business. Yeah. You surprised us, stunned us all with a map of the world and instructions <laughs> to fill out as many names of countries as possible. Yes. And, then, and, and, and everyone started looking around like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Whoa, we got to, okay, US, Canada, Mexico, yeah. then what? There's a real wake up call for us. So, yeah. you know, what have you seen then as opposed to now? Are, are, how are students evolving in terms of their awareness of the world? Oh, it's like, it's like night and day. I Is mean, it? Right now, um, okay, so just go back to teaching at, at, at Michigan Business School. First of all, the class, the MBAs, let's say, overwhelmingly white mm. american and male 
Mm. In fact, I remember one of my Egyptian students said, "Did you see this picture of these MBAs from the 1950s?" So I said, "They all look the same." So we call them the brothers, <laughs> and it was actually very, very significant. It's extreme from the teacher's point of view. When you have a class that's homogeneous, okay,、mm. it's really difficult to grade them. Because you don't know who is who,、mm. and it's not just me. Because I grew up outside of America, and like it's not like all white people look alike, right?、Um, because even my white American male colleagues had problems, and here's the problem: because in business school in those days, everybody had short hair, right? Yes, you know, and a clean cut. You can't tell the difference. Whereas with women, you can. Mm. Their hair is different. Their clothing is different. And in the liberal arts college, you can because some of the guys have long hair and they wear flannel shirts. You know, there's there's a difference. So it was actually very difficult in a class of forty to sixty to get to know everyone. And that's why we have seating charts. You know, like who is who. So that was probably the biggest、um, difference, and of course, most people were from the Midwest and they had not traveled. Although the fact that they chose my classes meant that they had, like you, they were different. Okay, they、mm-hmm. had some interest in the rest of the world. So that was very interesting. Nowadays, starting maybe about ten or fifteen years ago, you couldn't attract people into an MBA program if you did not offer. International experiences, right? It's、mm. become mainstreamed.、Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to, you know, have study abroad, internship experiences. They want,、um, they want, they expect to be in a classroom with people from many different countries. To them, the MBA is sort of kind of like an, particularly for those with no previous international experience, is an immersion in building networks, building understanding, gaining experiences. In the rest of the world, so it's really、um, night and day. Complete transformation. I'm recalling being a guest lecturer at, in your class several years ago. Yes. And wow,、um, I remember lots of Indian students, lots of Chinese students,、yes. and then a handful of white dudes. Yes. <laughs> it's really changed. Yes. <laughs>、mm-hmm. No, it was. It's extremely. Extremely interesting. I mean, there's both pluses and minuses to that. the The minus is that people are still, and this is a general problem. People are still segregated because there are enough of them.、Mm. They don't have to interact. If you know what I mean. Yes. You can sit. There was one year, only about five years ago, where there were in this class of forty five or whatever, there were only five white women, and they formed a team among themselves. <laughs> that was it. Everybody noticed it, right? So I always make a point of to encourage, if not force, people to form teams with people who are different from them. Otherwise,、mm. how are you going to learn,、mm-hmm. right? You、mm-hmm. have to get out of your comfort zone, and that's why you, Michael, were such an incredible role model for my students. Given that you shuffled off to China,、oh. you know, before anybody <laughs> did, and you went into a remote interior place. Um, you know, not Shanghai. I mean, Shanghai and Beijing today are like nothing. You can live the same life as you did in Chicago, right? Yes. But you chose to go, or maybe you had no choice, and then you went to a, the most difficult place. And I like that. I like that a lot. Well, like that's that there's an、yeah. explanation for that, Linda. 
You told me to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like being th- dropped into the deep end, right? Yes. Yeah, um, you learn how to swim. Absolutely, absolutely. And the things you learn, you cannot learn in the classroom. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. Okay, so speaking of that exact topic, like the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the, the, the surprises, right now, many companies in the West are looking at China and wondering, what should we plan for? Are we looking at a partial decoupling, a major decoupling, or will it be business as usual? What's your read on the future relationship, business relationship between, say, the United States and China? I would say decoupling at the margins. That's all. Mm. Okay, It's not business as usual. Forget it. You know, forget the newspaper headlines and so on. It's something you have to take into account. But I would say, for example, if you were thinking of, say, moving an assembly line, from China to Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, because of cost or other business considerations, and you're not sure, you're on the fence, then the geopolitical tension might push you over the edge and you might go to Vietnam, okay? Because it, it, it's something that comes up. Should we move or have our next assembly line in Vietnam? There are very good reasons for it, including risk minimization even if there's no uh, geopolitical tension, you might want to do that. Wages in China are going up and things like that, right? Vietnam market is growing. So there are many reasons. If you're making that decision, and on top of it, like you're in electronics like I was, uh, and you have pressures, political pressures from both the US and the China side, that might be enough to push you to diversify. But if it makes absolutely no business sense to move to Vietnam now, probably because the supply chain isn't there, um, then the geopolitical rivalry should not be enough to push you to decouple. So what I think recent developments have taught us is, yes, you have to reevaluate your operations and their geographical location. You have to add geopolitical risks, just like you have to add pandemic risks mm-hmm. as a factor to consider if you did not already. So you have to consider it, but you should not do anything that doesn't make financial or economic sense right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I say decoupling at the margins. And each of those decisions is a case-by-case decision. It cannot be, I I can't tell you, you must or you must not. Mm -hmm. So you don't foresee, at least right now, a major decoupling of the world's two biggest economies due to political attentions. Don't see that. No, I don't see that happening because both are so dependent on each other. Hmm. And because, I mean, over time, there will be, what shall I call it, a natural decoupling. Why? Because other economies will grow and become more attractive. And China, as you know, is aging rapidly, et cetera, et cetera, might become marginally less attractive. Mm. So you might be more interested in Vietnam or India or Brazil or something like that. Something could happen. So like naturally, you would have faster growth in another country than you would in China, Mm. right? Just because China is already middle income, the countries most likely to grow faster are those that are less, right? That uh, have much more runway, as I said, much more uh, catching up to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of economic development, a lot of economic growth is simply catching up. So if you're at the frontier, 
you will grow more slowly, like the US, Japan, etc. Uh, if you're not at the frontier, then you have lots of room to apply new technologies, put invest more capital, train more people. So the growth uh, for the longer haul beyond the next 10 years is definitely in um, in emerging markets. And some of as you invest in them, as you get engaged in them, your engagement in China will naturally shrink not in absolute terms, but as a share of your total. Mm -hmm. Like if you're doing 100% of your assembly in China, over time will go down. It'll go down to 70% because you have more opportunities to do it and more markets to do it elsewhere. Yes, we've seen China, um, you know, sort of sensing this demographic challenge that they have in a slowing mm -hmm. economy. The car market for the last several years has actually been declining. Mm -hmm. And in order to get out in front of that, they've put together this blueprint made in China 2025. They never talk about it anymore because it's too politically um, toxic. But the, the aim was to be the world leader in next generation technologies so that they could become more productive, more efficient doing EVs, autonomous vehicles, 5G, robotics, chips, etc. In your view, so ambitious, will China get there? Will China, 10 years out, will China set the standard for the world in cutting edge technologies? This is a very interesting question because, and I haven't said it publicly before, but uh, for four or five years, um, I was teaching at in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, Chinese executives who came to the US to learn about managing technological innovation, mm. right? It was made in China 2025, et cetera. And it was, it was a very interesting experience over many years. And they've far gone beyond that. But what we looked at was how other countries did it, right? Hmm. Not just the US, not just Western countries, but Japan, Korea. I remember I had to teach them about Korean and Taiwan uh, semiconductors. Where are they on the map? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they were clearly also going global, right? Mm -hmm. They clearly wanted to learn how other people saw the world. Hmm. It's very similar actually, to what Americans were doing, you know, when I, when I was um, teaching. So will China develop in next generation technologies, uh, robotics, chips, etc.? Yes. Will they become the leader? I don't know what being a leader means. Mm. So well, I for example, they might start to say, we'll set the rules, the standards for these technologies, and everyone else would, needs to follow our standards. That's one, one way. Yeah, I don't think that... I know that's what the rhetoric is out there, mm -hmm. but I don't think that they will do that until, if ever, they are actually leading. You mm -hmm. know, so the, the question is, we don't know what technological leadership means, right? Does it mean being first or biggest, most efficient or most profitable? These are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you could be first in developing, say, a functional autonomous vehicle or COVID vaccine. But if it's not the best quality, the most it's not the most cost efficient to produce, or it turns out to be unsafe, you may fail to scale up. You could lose in the market because no one wants to buy your product. So this is one of the big things that that you know we had to no, I wouldn't say teach, but emphasize uh, with with the Chinese executive. Even if some there's an engineering mindset and there's a business mindset, hmm. the two are different, right? And China, so, China tends to have the engineering mindset. They've done spectacularly well at yes, home, and yet yes. globally, they're not there. Yes, 
you might an engineering mindset enables you to get to what is you know technically possible mm-hmm. but what is technically possible may not be market sensible mm-hmm. right or it might not be economically um, efficient for example if you develop something that uses a ton of fossil fuels right so there are lots of things that you have to um consider so i would say definitely china will advance and it will advance mainly because of its own population mm-hmm. it has a large market it has very entrepreneurial population right so it's chinese businesses based with a large home market like the us in the 50s and 60s that's the reason that they will get ahead and uh but there are also various constraints right and the constraints the main constraint today i would say is the government right we don't know what the chinese government wants no we don't <laughs> it brings surprises on us all the time right on everyone and so if you're an entrepreneur in china it's it's kind of difficult there is government money for certain areas and you will probably go into it because it's government money and by the way that's the same problem that the west and Japan will face just because you have government money doesn't mean that you should go into that mm. doesn't mean that you will develop a competitive advantage the history of industrial policy has been that in most cases it fails right in not everyone can be like TSMC in Taiwan or Samsung in Korea in fact the reason we teach those cases is because it's so unusual most people throw money at things uh, particularly government money which has a different payoff a different motivation than private money so i'd say that this is one of the the big contradictions in china china's greatest strength is its very dynamic entrepreneurial private sector which as you know has been responsible for most of the growth and 90% of the employment creation in the last 20 30 years at the same time uh it has a state which does help in some ways but there's only so much that a state can do in terms of generating a technological innovation that makes market sense and in particular makes global market sense you want people to buy your product buy your technology because it is the best that's out there right mm-hmm. and it's at a good price and so on you don't want them to buy it because somehow you force them to do it mm-hmm. uh or because you know it's particularly cheap So if you put a global lens on it then I think China has a further to go for example you mentioned standards technological standards and I know everyone frets about this but there's you usually come to the best standards through a process of market trial and error right mm-hmm. if you insist that everybody follow a particular standard and that turns out not to be the most efficient whether in terms of using resources environmental or whatever then we're all hurt mm. right everybody the, the innovation will actually be slower than it could be and people you know you your standard might just like collapse yeah great example and, maybe china today would like to say sinovac is the global standard for vaccines for covid-19 but yeah. who's going to buy into that yes yeah yeah no exactly so so i think there is no for both the us and china there is no alternative to a global world mm-hmm. right it doesn't make sense to exclude either it just it absolutely doesn't make sense it will take you longer to get wherever you wanted to go if for example uh, americans did not have access to chinese talent and chinese did not have access to the us market both will be much slower right 
in terms of their development. So I think that, you know, it's not good for technological innovation writ large, for the world at large, and for China um, itself. It has, China has advanced through the stage it has in technology, industry, and so on, through globalization, right? By partnering with uh, foreign companies, buying foreign technology, having their, uh, having foreign education, and so on. And I don't think even if the U.S., which is so much more advanced in so many ways in China, cannot go to the next level without, say, immigrant talent, mm-hmm. right? Without uh, buying, you know, having a partnership with BioNTech, you know, to do uh, COVID vaccines. If even the U.S. can't do it, uh, I really don't see how China can. This is what makes it so fascinating, Linda, right now. It seems, at least from the outside, because we haven't visited China now in more than a year because of COVID, it Mm -hmm. seems like China's turning inward and saying, it's our time, we're the center, we can do this, and we may not need the rest of the world. This is what's such a puzzle. Yes, and just from my experience in China and with people in business sector and government and so on, I think this is kind of unusual. This is not a Chinese thing. Mm -hmm. It's a particular line that a particular government at a particular point of time has chosen. I don't see anything culturally Chinese, for example. I don't see anything economically Chinese Mm -hmm. about inward turning. Mm. Um, I think it is a concern uh, for everyone, particularly for the Chinese uh, themselves. We know from the history of planned economies from Soviet Union to India to China itself that um, control doesn't really work. Central control doesn't really work. And the reason is when you're at the technological frontier, there is no visibility. We don't know. We cannot know what's ahead. That's a definition Mm, of being at the frontier. That's a great point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The best way to find out what's out there is to have private enterprises risk their owners and their investors' capital and try, right? Some, probably most, will fail, but some will succeed. Since they are private, the failures don't impose a cost on the public purse or on society at large, right? When there's no visibility, why would I put all my country's effort and scarce resources and scarce talent and scarce capital in one particular area? No, you know, let a hundred flowers bloom. Mm. Let all these people go out there. A whole bunch of them will fail. That's what entrepreneurship is all about. And uh, some will succeed. And sure, you know, I can help them in various ways, mainly through education, funding education and basic uh, research. But um, we just don't know the future. We can never know the future, right? Mm. So... Uh, if you haven't even caught up from the past, what makes you think that you want to, you know, somehow some bureaucrat somewhere will know what the future They'd is? They'd like to flip the switch and say, we own the future. Yeah. yeah just no, by I, declaring it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You also, for many years, educated not only Chinese executives coming to the United States, but of course, Western executives who wanted to go global. Yeah. What, in your experience, is the number one mistake Western executives make when they go to Asia or more specifically when they go to China? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake and it's generalizable beyond business and beyond Western executives in China is to have only one model in your head of what is rational. 
Mm. Right. So the number one thing that Western executives going to Asia and China is what's with these people? Why are they doing this? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense. Right. Then. And the thing is, you always have to put yourself in the other person's head. Mm -hmm. Now, if the other person is doing this, there is some reason. Everyone is rational. Okay? They're doing this because not because like you, they're profit maximizing or whatever, but because perhaps they're hedging certain risk, okay? They're pleasing certain bureaucrat. They, I'm sorry to say, you know, they're trying to feather the nest of their family members. You know, I mean, they're just like here, people have multiple different objects. So you have to see why. You have to see the rationality in what they do. Instead of saying, there's only one way, that's our way, these people, don't know how to do anything and you know we're leaving or you know whatever that is so true linda and i have to confess when i first went to thailand back in 1990 yeah the impulse was when i'd see something that didn't make sense to me i, I might say it out loud or i might think it to myself well that's not how we do it in america Yes. And then you say, well, that's so prejudiced. Why would you have that mindset? Well, you come from the United States, you go, well, grow up here. We're the most advanced economy in the world. We have our act together. Yeah. So naturally, people would want to mimic what we're doing. But the realities on the ground are so different. We cannot make that mistake and say, oh, let's duplicate the American experience here in Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia. No, it doesn't work. It's different. Yeah. No, I would just say that it's particularly difficult for Western executives and perhaps for people who've gone through an MBA because, an American MBA in particular, because we are the state of the art. We are. Yeah, mm -hmm. not that it's not that we're perfect, but world forces have made us that way, right? Yes. Why do people from around the world come here to study? Our universities, not just MBA program, universities in general, are the leaders, they're the world class, right? So people come here for that. So it's very difficult when you are supposedly the best to acknowledge that you don't have the answer. Mm -hmm. And that maybe what you learned or what you research is not the way to go about something, right? Which is really hard because yeah. what's the answer if it isn't the way that we know that's worked here? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, and, and being global really means Again, trying to see the rationality in what other people, why other people are making the decisions they're making, trying to show them if you really think your way is the best only mm -hmm. way. Why? So it's a long period of education. Mm. You know, being a Western manager in Asia is a lot. It's all about learning. You have to learn from the environment and then you have to help your employees and your partners and so on learn. The way you know, so, so it's like some sort of a mutual learning uh, process. So education really is at the heart of it. And I have to make my pitch here, which is what is the secret sauce of American success, which Chinese executives are always keen. They seem to think there's something like special, you know, about mm. Americans that turns out people like you know Elon Musk or Bill Gates or something like that. They devour their biographies, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, and there is. I think certainly one of my Chinese uh, colleagues um, said, who taught them about the you know, university system, freedom of inquiry. Mm. That is it, right? You must be free. This is a Chinese colleague who had you know, been educated in China and Chinese universities and so on, became a professor in America. You must be free to ask the questions you think in your profession are necessary. And 
the freer you are, the more likely it is that you will come up with the idea. The freer you are, the more diverse you are. A bunch of people thinking differently, being free to think, are more likely to come up with a solution, say, I don't know, to what, you know, climate change or something, mm. than a bunch of people who are the same, who are all the same, who are like the brothers that were in the MBA class in the 1950s, all with the same background, thinking the same way, and not free to think for any number of reasons. You can be not free to think, not because there's government censorship or anything, but because there's social expectations, right? This is not politically correct. I mustn't think this way. I mustn't mm. speak this way. So there are all kinds of things. So you, we have to be free. I think freedom of inquiry, particularly in social issues and technological issues, it's a habit. It's a habit of mind that you then apply, hopefully, to bring about solutions for the world. That's a little bit the magic of California, isn't it? <laughs> Just, I don't know. Michigan's pretty good, too. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, Michigan's number one, but California's <laughs> catching up. <laughs> Just the wide openness of California and the freedom to question things. Yeah. Right yeah. or wrong may go in the wrong direction, but there's a freedom to say, wait a minute, why have we been doing it this way? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at Elon Musk. I remember my father saying, after driving in the Tesla, this is several years ago, he said, Elon Musk, a guy with zero automotive experience, yeah. puts a lie to 40 years of lectures <laughs> from the Detroit Three about how to build a car. Yeah, no, you're right. Hmm. You have to, progress in human history comes from challenging authority hmm. and from challenging the status quo, right? Ex except for the professors at Michigan, we're not allowed <laughs> to do know. that. No, I mean, we learn from our students too, right? Of course. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Linda, I always enjoy talking to you and today is no different. Always yeah. learning a lot. I want to know one final question is how do we connect with you? I know you're working on a book, probably your 10th book now. And so you're no. very busy. What's that book and how do we connect with you? No, I'm not working on a book. As you keep forgetting, I am retired. <laughs> no, what I'm doing That's now... not in your vocabulary, Linda. You know that. <laughs> Retire, the word does not exist in the yeah, so Linda what, Lim what vocabulary. I'm... Okay, so what I'm doing now is... Actually, it's a good general principle in corporate strategy, you know, which I teach, which is when you have limited resources, let's say limited time, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're already 70 years old. Um what are you going to spend your energy and your effort on? Mm -hmm. And it is on what only you can do. I, mean, I always tell my students that your competitive advantage is you, right? So what's unique about you? What's different about you than other people that you can sell? You don't want to be like everybody else. Mm. You don't want to be one of the brothers. There's no distinctive edge. A competitive advantage is what you can do differently. So in my case, it turns out that um, I can write. I can write sometimes complex economic stuff in a way that uh, people can understand because I've been teaching it for so long, right? And so mainly I'm writing media commentaries now, mainly for the newspaper, mm -hmm. and very much focused on going back to my roots on Singapore, two things, the Singapore economy, uh, the Southeast Asian economy, and the universities. Uh, on, on Singapore um, academia. I have a blog, academia.sg, that uh, I and some other colleagues um, set up. And we, we like to publish 
articles by different people with different points of view, more or less challenging the sort of bit of a fuddy-duddy status quo that you sometimes get in Asian universities because they're too Confucian, right? They're mm-hmm. too hierarchical, they're too top-down. And so I, I'm sort of, I like to support and encourage young scholars, young researchers to ask different questions, to probe. It, it's all totally consistent with what I've done all my life, right? You want to push boundaries, particularly in my case at this stage, intellectual boundaries um, in places where you have a competitive advantage, right? When you are mm-hmm. different from other. And my advantage is I have been out of Singapore, right? I've been in the United States. I am in the United States. I've been to China. I've been all over these places. And so I have a lot of experience that I believe I can share. And I believe people need to be educated, even about complex things like current account deficits. And so that's part of my mission, you know, to, to educate the general public, not necessarily only academics, onto some of the major uh, economic issues of the day. Well, we need you, Linda, because <laughs> the world is a complex place and it's changing faster than ever. And if I could sneak in one final bonus question, I know it's a big, broad one, but I think people would like to know because of your expertise in Southeast Asia in particular. You remember in the 90s, Southeast Asia was the darling of foreign direct investment, just billions of dollars pouring in there. China joins the WTO in 2001. All the money more or less shifts north to China. Now the pendulum swinging back to Southeast Asia as people want to diversify their risk. And I get so many questions from people asking, well, if we're going to place bets on a country in Southeast Asia, which one would it be? And I understand it depends on industry, but if you're if you if you're asked, Linda, which where would you put your money in Southeast Asia for the next ten years? Oh, that, again, it's very hard to ask a question, of a Professor, because we will say <laughs> it depends, right? In uh-huh, it depends. Sector, I would probably, oh, yeah, I would probably say Indonesia. Indonesia, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's uh, first of all, people forget it's uh, you know fourth most populous country in the world. It has an incredibly dynamic tech sector, right? In fact, all the tech money that's going into Singapore, it's not for the Singapore market, right? Which right. It's really for, for um, Indonesia. They have, they have tremendous entrepreneurs. And uh, so, so I would put it there, it is risky. But if you think about it, Indonesia was risky, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And it has consistently, despite poor government or no government or whatever, has consistently grown you know, 5% a year, 5%, mm. 6% a year. And um, even though it's risky, now I know the usual darling uh, is Vietnam, but I, I think Indonesia is a better bet if you're looking at supplying a market, mm. right? As opposed to just producing for the world, which I think Vietnam is certainly now better. There you have it, Indonesia. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, uh, as I said, I'm retired and uh, my stocks are still, I'm living in the U.S., my stocks are still in the U.S. market. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for our intrepid 22-year-olds who are looking for some action, yeah. it's, it's Indonesia or Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. All right. Linda Lim, okay. Professor Emerita of Corporate Strategy and International Business at the University of Michigan. Thank you for all of you that you've done for me over the years. And thank you for joining us today on the Winning in Asia podcast. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. To be yeah. continued. Yeah, okay. All the best. Take care. 
From the very first time I met Linda Lim until today, she always brings three really cool things to a conversation. One, a young heart. Two, easy laughter. And three, those street smarts. Who would have known that an economics professor could be so savvy? Well, today she reminded us at the end of our conversation, I hope you heard it, that the best thing we can do in our work and in our life is to be different, to be differentiated. And the best way to be different is to be ourselves and our own unique life experiences. Hey, no one else has those. Take them and run with them. I love that simple wisdom. And as for investing in the future, Linda likes Vietnam if you're producing for the world and Indonesia if you're looking to tap into a massive market, some 260 million people. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Linda Lim as much as I did. Take a moment, you know, 15 seconds, share it with a friend, hit the share button, forward, copy, paste, whatever. Boom, done. My name is Michael Dunn. Thank you so much for joining the Winning in Asia podcast. Thanks for listening to Winning in Asia. Please let us know what you think by leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. For more information or to connect with Michael Dunn, visit zozogo.com. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.